1: Your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. field going back, looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. Go for Cody Bellinger It's one out. He also, he's your home run derby. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. Live. Here's Chris Townsend. Boy, do we have a great Monday show for you
0: today here on A's Cast Live. It's a Monday. That means it's Himbo Day. All Himbikides from ESPN will be here at 1:30. It's draft week, folks. We're going to be on all week long. We're going to be on 1 to 4 today. Wednesday, we're going to be on at 6:30 cuz that's when the around when the A's are going to be drafting. Then we'll have full shows on Thursday from 1 to 4 and Friday from 1 to 4. We'll have on A's personnel, we'll have the draft pick on We are going to cover the Major League Baseball draft like we have never covered it before. Eric Loggenhagen, an old friend of the program, is going to be here at 2 o'clock from Fangraphs. Then J.J. Cooper, who covers the draft for Baseball America, will be here at 2.30. Former A, Mike Norris, a 20-game winner, will be here at 3 o'clock. And then a real special treat for you today. Rod Carew, the Hall of Famer, will join us at 3.30. Truly one of the greatest hitters and players to have ever lived. And what's really cool is we add him to the list of Hall of Famers the commander has booked. Do you have a number? So we've been on for just over a year. How many baseball Hall of Famers, Cody, have we had on this program?
2: I want to say the numbers around between twenty five and thirty, somewhere in there. Now it's A's Hall of Famers, that's Hall of Famers like Jack Morris, who I was intimidated as hell to talk to. That's, you know. You're
0: still scared of Jack Morris.
2: Yeah, still. And if we that was almost a year ago when we talked to him. You know, different you know, from Ranging from Jack Morris to Burt Blylevin. 11,
0: c Frick Award winners, they're Hall yeah. of Famers. All,
2: you know, Jason Stark, Eric Nadel, all the guys that won the Fort c Frick Award and the Spink Award for journalism, to the players like Rod Carew, Reggie Jackson, uh, Raleigh. Uh, we've had a lot of players, and then there's some players. Bert that 11. There should be some guys that are should be in the Hall of Fame that we've had on. So we've had a nice little run over the past year and a couple of weeks of uh, having Hall of Famers on this on this program. Rod Carew,
0: you look at his numbers, and you say to yourself, how did this guy, because there are certain players you'd say, ah, you know, Cody would say, ah, it's just about batting average. Batting average doesn't mean anything. He 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 has a career eight, tw- eight, eight, uh, 822 career OPS with only 92 home runs. That means he had a ton of extra base hits. I mean, a ton. He's an MVP. He's a rookie of the year. He had 3,053 hits. But, I mean, he He had 455 doubles. He had 112 triples.
2: That's a lot of triples.
0: How many times did he steal home?
2: Uh that's a great question. I know he has a great story about stealing home that we can ask him about. It involves Harmon Killebrew and uh the the Twins PR apparently put a uh, a fake uh, uh here lies Rod Crew, I believe, sign out in the outfield for him. So it was as a joke because of what happened on the play. So we will have to ask him about that. That was that was <laughs> intel I got from one of my one of my friends in the industry who let me know about uh about that story.
0: So it's him stealing home and Harmon Killebrew, the Hall of Famer, is at the plate. That's what
2: I was told, yeah. Uh, so I uh, can't wait to to ask the question and uh, see what
0: he has, okay, see his so, response. so uh, you know what? I absolutely just hate when I spill. Isn't that the worst thing when you spill? I, I just to... spilled coffee all over my studio.
2: See, now if I was in the studio with you, we'd have a problem. There'd be equipment there. But now, see, it's just you, social distancing. It's completely different. Did you get
0: this? You know, this this social distancing thing with you having to be at your place and I don't have to see you. I'm kind of getting used to this. I may never see you again.
2: Well, I mean, on
0: Wine Wednesday.
2: Yeah, that's true. I was gonna ask you, did you go out at all? For because you know they you're allowed to you know go out and do some more things now here in Santa Clara County. I saw Alameda and San Francisco County are now allowing to have social bubbles where you can have no more than twelve people in a group, and you can't be part of more than one social bubble. From what I was reading. Uh, Did you get out at
0: all this weekend? Did I get out at all? I don't even know. What did I do this weekend? I I, mean, I'm out shopping. Like, I've been to Costco. I got to, you know, replenish the uh, beverages. What did I do this weekend? Oh, I went to uh, Hoppus Brewery yesterday. Me and my best friend, uh, we went on a bike ride and uh, ended over at uh, Hoppus.
2: So they have outdoor seating there now? Yeah, they, wow. got, they,
0: got, they, got, they got they got they have all kinds of outdoor hoppers brewery on Lincoln Avenue here in Willow Glen, and they have the outside. And uh, we had a few beers, so I did that yesterday. I can't even tell you what I did Saturday. I don't even remember what I did Saturday. I, mean, I don't even know what days it. if it wasn't for this job, I wouldn't even know what day it is. Like, what's the difference? Like, there's no days anymore, it's like unless you're working. What's Monday versus Thursday versus Saturday? They're all the same.
2: Now it's it's weird because my fiance Dina, her work schedule is different than what a normal work week would be because she works certain days four days during the week and then she has days off. And her week's begin on Sundays, where ours begin on Mondays. And she always says how the little weekend just ended, the big week, the big weekend is just starting today. Because so Friday through Sunday is the little weekend, Monday through Thursday is the big weekend because all the days are kind of blending together for everyone. We went, okay. a, uh, we went to a we went to a winery that was out, open outdoors in Hollister on Saturday. That was a lot of fun really? to be outside. A lot, social distancing was practiced. It was uh, I had a nice glass of wine and one white claw, and I called it evening because I had to drive back home.
0: You got me thinking, like, what the hell did I do on Saturday?
2: Did you Did not go golfing?
0: None of that. No, I I have every day been going across to the park. Uh, with my sandwich and hitting balls. I've been doing that every, I've religiously done that just about every single day. So at some point when Little League starts back up, they're going to see all these divots on the, because I go from field, I hit it from field to field. Somebody's going to be like, who is this jerk out here <laughs> hitting golf balls? <laughs> There's going to be all kinds of divots in their grass. That'll be kind of funny. Um, so to take you behind the curtain, we have this running template uh, on Google Docs, and Cody, you just changed it on me. So what is this Carl Ravitch on ESPN broke a story on Twitter today? What is this?
2: So Carl was the guy. It wasn't Passin. It wasn't Buster. It wasn't John Heyman. It wasn't John Paul Morosi. wasn't any of the big guys you see breaking news about different proposals being sent out there. It was Carl Ravitch that had it first this morning on Twitter when I woke up. And then he was on ESPN earlier explaining the uh, what's the new proposal that Major League Baseball sent over to the players. Do you want? Are we going to gonna hear it? Yeah, let's. I'll let me play it right
3: now. Major League Baseball sent a proposal to the Players Association, uh, basically looking at the 114 game proposal that the players had made and the 82 games that were out there at one point, and moving off this 48 to 50 game schedule and saying. We are now willing to play 76 games, more games than 48 and 50, 76 games. The pro-rated salary will be at 75%. There's no sliding scale, which was a, a thorn with a lot of the folks in the Players Association, that certain players were getting penalized more than others. This is a 75% of your full salary over the course of 76 games for everybody. Major League Baseball got rid of what was uh, always an issue for players' draft pick compensation. There was the idea that teams would be reluctant to sign a player. Yankees signed Garrett Cole. They forfeited a future draft pick. That will be eliminated, which will allow teams to sign players and not lose a future draft pick. There will be a compensation pick given to these other teams. It is an effort, at the very least, to show that Major League Baseball is interested in playing more baseball games they do want to play more games that was something the association and there was some narrative out there that major league baseball is not interested in more games if the players and early reaction to this from the players is we want 100 of our salary and that's it if that is in fact the line in the sand or even the line in the cement I think we're going to be looking at a 48 to 50 game season which will start at some point in July End in September with a playoffs in October. This generates roughly, according to a source, 200 million more dollars in salary to the players. And rather than what feels like an olive branch, uh, it feels more like a thorn bush that they don't want to touch. Now there is no 114 games on the table because health experts are suggesting there's going to be a real likelihood of a second outbreak of uh, coronavirus. And having a season interrupted or a postseason interrupted would be economically catastrophic to both sides.
0: Well, there's a lot to dig in there. 76 games, 75% of their prorated salaries. The season would start on July 10th and on September 27th. Postseason runs to the end of October. No draft pick compensation for signing free agents. Roughly $200 million more in salaries for the players. Includes potential earnings that would cover up to 75% of the players' prorated salaries over a 70 game season. About call it close to 1.5 billion in total compensation. Of that, 989 million would be in straight salary, 443 million in money paid in the playoffs if the playoffs take place. Our friend of the program Bob Nightingale is reporting that the players association, they see this latest proposal as a step backwards. He tweeted, the proposal also requires the players to sign an acknowledgement of risk, a waiver while playing games during the pandemic. (sighs) I don't know. I mean, it's it's the negotiations. I mean, where I will stand on this is It's a good thing they're talking. That's the one thing that I keep coming back to, having seen this in years past, where they're talking. Proposals are being sent. There's reactions to the proposals from both sides. You know, if there's not proposals being sent, then you're at a stalemate. They're talking, and that is a good thing. Because you need to have that communication and you need to get this thing done. Now, we'll have Himbo coming up here at the bottom of the hour. He's very frustrated. But I think where it's really leaning to is playing around 50 games. That's where I think it, this is heading to. Owners don't want to lose a boatload of money. Players want to play. but if players are sitting here saying hey listen we made an agreement in march and we want all of that money well part of that agreement what we found out from was it Joel Sherman Cody who broke that
2: yeah he had the uh, he had the, the memo or whatever he had a certain word for it, but yeah he was the one that i think that broke that cuz he got an email or yeah Joel Sherman of the new york post not friend of the program as we as we
0: said oh not even close does he even return does he even return anything
2: he does return my text, and he just says he can't do it. Which I I commend him for at least sending a text message back. He's busy. The my the my favorite are the ones that will put leave you as the kids say leave you on red Well, they'll read the text message and then just don't respond. Terrific, thank maybe, you for
0: acknowledging. Maybe hey, maybe maybe you should go through the your uh, great connection with MLB Network to get Sherman because he technically is an employee. Yeah,
2: once Joel's great, and I know. You know, we'll get him eventually. He, he's. We were able to track down Jim Bowden. Joel Sherman is now next on the list of, of uh, baseball writers we need to get A's, on.
0: A's, A's cast live most wanted.
2: Uh, behind Greg Maddox, he's probably number. He's probably one. He's one B, where Maddox is one
0: A. All right. Yeah, it's uh, it's business, and we don't want to hear about it. To be honest with you, we don't. As they say, we don't want to hear about billionaires and millionaires fighting about money. We don't. We want baseball. And sometimes baseball, I think everybody in the game, they're in their own little world. Baseball's not reality. These guys' lives are not reality. These guys, the way they live, the way they're treated, their bank accounts, they don't live a regular lifestyle like we do. And that's owners to players. They're rich. They're all rich, for them except the young guys. But a lot of these guys, are, are they have generational wealth. So they don't have the day-to-day issues financially that the rest of us do. And when there's, I don't even know what the number is now. I'm kind of, I, I, I'm at a point where I, I, I've had to like lean back and kind of get away from the news a little bit. Uh, so the last time I checked, I don't know, maybe more, but there's like 41 million people who are unemployed and you can't play X amount of games. You can't come together and help the country heal, play X amount of games and do it every day. And what that would mean. But they don't. Th- I, you know, I don't. I don't think they think about it like like we do. You know, ha- we we've harped on for a couple of years now that the collective bargaining agreement's coming up, and that's what these guys are thinking about. They negotiated all these years to get guaranteed money, and this is not going to be the only fight. We've been telling you this. This is going to happen with the NFL. See, the deal with the NBA and the NHL, they've already played 75% or whatever you want to call it of their season. The NFL is going to have this exact same problem if there is not a treatment. We know there's not going to be a vaccine. But if there's not a treatment, say, okay, take this pill and it kills COVID in your body, they're not going to have people on the stands. So, for football, that's an extreme amount of money. I mean, that's... Luxury suites, season tickets, parking—I mean, that's big money. So they're going to have to go through this exact same thing. They just haven't had to have the conversation yet, but that conversation is coming. It's business, and baseball has fought for all these years to not have a salary cap, to have everything guaranteed. That once you sign, once you do the old John Hancock on, on, on the on the on the contract, you're getting every dime of that money. So they're going to fight like, like, and and you know what? The owners, you have to realize, and this is always when, when you, when, when I say you don't understand owners don't go into their personal pockets to fund the teams. Cause what do I hear? Oh, he's a billionaire. He's a billionaire. Owners don't go into their savings and float the team. And I totally understand that. I don't, as a business owner, I don't go into my personal family savings to fund the restaurant. The restaurant's got to stay on its own. I'm not digging into my college, my kid's college fund to help the restaurant out. That's not how that works. So if you think owners, when you, you know, because we always say, oh, these guys are so rich. Owners don't go into their own personal funds to fund the team. That's stupid. The team has to take care of itself. So that's why when you look at these negotiations, stop talking about personal wealth. That's not how that's going to work. But i tell you what, and from what I hear, and Cody, I don't know if you heard that, that Scott Boris is running a lot of this on the player's side. And that's kind of when, when you dip in, and, and Scott Boris has so much money. Uh, but even Scott, friend of the program, has to understand if you don't play, uh, you know, good luck. Because everybody else is going to try and play. And if you don't play, what are we talking about? If we're not going to see you till maybe next spring training, oh, my God. They, see, and I, I, they can't be this dumb. Uh, you have some audio of Buster Olney and Tim Kirchin. Is that correct?
2: Uh, yes, it was from Buster's podcast on Friday. They were talking to each other about the idea of short seats. Something we talked about before was something Mark Teixeira and Buster talked about. Well, Buster brought it up with Tim Kirchin who's – one of the most well-connected, one of the biggest old-school guys in baseball, and they were talking about the idea of players sitting out, and it starts with Kirkshin giving his uh, side of it.
4: Yeah, and again, Buster, I told you a month ago, I spoke to someone I really trust, and he told me, Tim, everyone's going to play. No one is going to allow 24 teammates to go to spring training and start a season, and one of them sits home and says, I'm not playing. That was a month ago. And a month later, I I think he's wrong. I think there will be more than a few players that will say this is not worth it. And if more than a few say it, then who knows how many after that will follow. That will be the worst case scenario. And let's just pray we don't get to that point. There's still time, Buster. There is still hope, but it is really getting late.
5: I talked to Clinton Yates yesterday about a couple of examples of players who might fit that bill. Uh, and let me throw one at you, George Springer, okay, his career started with his service time being manipulated. You know, his uh, ascent into the big leagues was uh, held back probably about by about two or three months. And so he came up short in the fall of 2019, a free agency by just a handful of days. If he'd been a free agent last fall, He probably, in a a winter in which Anthony Rendon Rendon got $245 million, George Springer probably would have gotten $180 to $200 million. Now, uh, with everything going on, if, in fact, there's a short baseball season leading up to when George Springer would be a free agent, he might only have 50 games. You, of course, have the inherent risk of injury going into free agency. There's always the question of small sample size. What happens if – George played and he batted two hundred. To me, Tim, I, I just I don't I don't see the upside for a player in Springer's position to play in those fifty games any more than, as I've been saying, you know, a college junior who's expected to be one of the top five picks in the NFL draft to play in a bowl game. Okay.
0: You don't want to play? Sit out and I guarantee you as an A's fan If George Springer doesn't want to play, I'm not going to be bummed. And if the A's are just playing the West, and that would be American League and National League. Cody, are you going to be bummed if Mookie Betts sits out?
2: Mookie, yes. George Springer, no. Mookie because I want to see him play with Cody Bellinger, and everyone knows I'm a Mookie Betts fan. George yeah, Springer, but I but... want to win
0: the division, and if I got to play the Dodgers and I got to play the Astros, teams that won 107 and 106 games collectively, if they're going to be out without some of their best players, I'm not going to be bummed whatsoever because our guys are going to play. You know, the the guy that you would look at on on our team that would be that guy would be Marcus Simeon, but knowing Marcus Simeon, there's no way he's not playing. If there's games, Marcus Simeon's going to be in the lineup, Marcus Simeon's going to be playing shortstop, and Marcus Simeon's going to be leading off. That guy loves to play baseball. I mean, I you take 18 months off your game? Think about that, folks. 18 months. You essentially don't play for two years. I mean... I don't know. I mean, I, 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 Spring, where, how old is Springer?
2: I think 30. Might be 31, but he's, he's getting up there because I, I want to say he's at least 30. I, I, I know he was, he's
0: 30. He'll be 31 in September. So you're going to be a free agent who hasn't played in 18 months. You're 31 years old. Oh, by the way, I would let, see, see, we're never going to get the players at this point. They're never going to give us players but I would love to sit down with a player and go, what do you think you're going to be worth if baseball doesn't play? You didn't play baseball didn't play. Who who do you think is going to at 31 years old, you really believe if the sport goes dark for 18 months that um, someone's offering you hundred million dollars. Hey, Mookie Betts. What do you think? You thought you were going to get trout money? You got no chance and you know what of getting trout money now. Especially if you don't play. The owners need to get the TV money. The TV money needs to come into the game to keep the game going in the right direction. Do you do? you think Tony Clark will have any leverage with a new collective bargaining agreement if they don't play this season? You think I'll have any leverage? What leverage would you have? There's been no money coming in. A business, we're all in business to make money. If money's not coming in, what leverage do you have? You're going to go in going, gimme, gimme, gimme. We want more. We want more. We want more. And they're going to look at him and go, what are you talking about? Haven't played in 18 months. Haven't played since the last World Series. How long ago does that seem?
2: Forever ago. And it was only October, which was
0: what seems like a long time. Mean, eight months. We're ago. in middle. We're in mid, We're in the middle of the season. We're in June. We're about to hit the dog days of summer. Normally, at this point, we're talking about trade deadlines. Who are the A's going to pick up? I mean, that's. I mean that, that that's what. And once again. I think the way they're going back and forth and playing ping pong, something's gonna get done. So I I mean Tim Kirchin, you see, Tim Kirchin God bless him, but he's lived through the baseball wars. So he's seen people throw gasoline on the fire. I don't see that am I wrong, Cody? I don't see this as gasoline on the fire. I see this as they keep talking, which means at some point. Somebody's gonna some Somebody's gonna go. You know what? This is this is this is good. Let's go. Let's start playing.
2: I mean, there are some players voicing their opinion on social media. Like Jack Flaherty of the Cardinals has been pretty outspoken. Sean Doolittle has been saying stuff on social media. You know, the last couple hours. Um, I mean, they love they the some of the players like the 114 game proposal, and you know they they understand what's going on in the world right now and everything. Like Doolittle is one of the most down to earth. Understands everything. Reads the room better than most people ever could ever imagine. So, like, when you have players like that who understand it, it's great. But but the idea of them going back and forth, I'm with you. I think that's a good sign. Hopefully something gets done. I hope that it doesn't come to where Manfred just says, we're playing 48 to 50 games and that's it. Because then that's when you could see what Buster's talking about, where players are like, you know what, you're forcing us to play and, we, and it's under not our under conditions. Maybe that does happen.
0: I'm not saying it will, but it's it's in the realm of possibilities. Buying or selling this Thursday will affect the negotiations. The draft? Buying or selling this Thursday will affect the negotiations. Mm, selling. Because you know what Thursday is, right? Well,
2: the second day of the draft, but um, I guess I'm missing something else. Now on the tee. Oh, golf, yeah.
0: Justin Johnson. Now on the tee, Rory McElroy. I doubt Tiger's playing, but now on the tee, <laughs> the great Tiger Woods. Now on the tee, Phil Mickelson. Golf's back Thursday. Real competition is back. And I guarantee you, people who don't even watch golf are going to watch this because it's live and it's real. It's competition, it's programming, and sports are back. NASCAR is not big enough around the country to do that. But you know what? Golf is. Because when that guy Tiger Woods tees it up, the ratings go through the roof. Everybody loves watching Tiger. T hey, the data doesn't lie. We know when he puts that T in the ground and he steps up, you watch. Sports fans watch. I think that does affect this Thursday, because what's Sports Center gonna do? Sports Center. And all of these, I I was watching uh, Vern Glenn over the weekend, friend of the program. Vern Glenn was, like, making stuff up about He had nothing to report on his, his, what does he get, like four minutes or whatever it is on the weekends? He had nothing to report. What do you think they're all going to do? They're all now just going to go golf, golf, golf. Golf is going to be, watch what golf is going to do. Mark my words as someone who studies the media. Watch ESPN. What's the lead story going to be on SportsCenter that runs every day, all day?
2: LeBron James.
0: Ain't going to be the last dance. (laughs) It ain't going to be Lance. It ain't going to be LeBron, and it's not going to be the NFL. It's going to be golf because it's the only thing going. No offense, NASCAR. If you have the big names in the game teeing it up, they're gonna lead every broadcast that it'll be the broadcast because it's they're we're we're all dying to talk. I mean, luckily, I think for us, baseball is a sport that has such a rich history and there's so much numbers involved in the game that you and I, Cody, can always figure out something to talk about and keep it interesting and keep it fresh. But you can't do that in these other sports. Hey, it's Allen Iverson's birthday. Uh, okay. What are you gonna do for the next three hours? You're gonna talk about what happened in the late nineties with the bulls. That's all you got. That's all they got. You're having to go back to old documentaries. Well, you're not going to have to do that now because the PGA tour is here and they're teeing it up. I'm going to watch a lot of you are going to watch and they're going to get all the headlines. I haven't looked at a sports page in a long time. What do you think is going to be on the front of the sports page come Thursday?
2: Tiger Woods. Phil? What do you
0: think when I go to ESPN.com, for example, and we're going to get to himbo in just a minute, but I'm riffing right now. I'm at ESPN.com. What does it say? It says, we redraft the NFL from scratch. Mahomes to Cincinnati. Rodgers invade. They're going back and 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 doing what?
2: Uh, I'd have to look. I haven't looked. I go to. They're, eat-
0: they're redrafting old drafts. Are you kidding me? That's their front page story right now on ESPN.com. Check back, everybody. Check back. If you think I'm full of it, check back with me uh, midday on Thursday. Check back with. Go at four o'clock. Everybody, go to ESPN.com and tell me what the number one story is going to be. Unless baseball works out a deal, that number one story is going to be the PGA Tour. They're going to get all the headlines because they're playing. Earlier today, it's a it's a Monday. I'll say Wednesday. It's a Monday, and we check in from ESPN. The great Paul Himakitis, Himbo, on a Monday. How are you, buddy?
6: It is good to see your face. It is good to hear your voice. It's also good to see your hair. Uh, how are we over there? How's it looking? Is it is it long enough yet? Luscious. Uh, I'd imagine that you're just wearing the visor at this point to support it because otherwise you won't be able to see anything. Am I right? <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's like I, I almost could have a ponytail at this point. I we've, hate to we've admit made it. this
6: joke we, for those who can't see. We've made this joke for like the last month and a half, and it's and, and it continues to get worse, you know, progressively every single week. So I, we'll
0: see how long this
6: runs for us. But this is this is not like the longest running joke in show business.
0: You are arguably wearing the greatest shirt I've ever seen. It's a shirt <laughs> with your face all
7: over it.
6: Yeah, so uh, I turned 30 uh, last month to surprise me. Um, my wife purchased uh, shirts of of uh, my face on them for the whole family. And for, again, for those who can't see, like this isn't just like a you know, white T-shirt with my face on it. This is like 30 of me, like all sort of morphed into a shirt. So like the shirt actually like looks nude, like the shirt, like the color of the shirt looks like a nude color. Uh, I've seen I've seen people wear these before for professional athletes like you know like, you know super fans but like usually don't you don't see people wearing these of themselves but uh you know these are desperate times they call for desperate measures and we have to get through a lot of laundry today clearly
0: this literally has made my day so it's the same picture of you and it's all over the <laughs> shirt like it's the like you can barely see like half your face on the sleeve but it, yeah. it, it's just all you Everywhere on the shirt. Yeah, I'm, I'm, like, I'm cutting
6: myself off. It's like there's sort of like overlapping, overlapping me's. It's hard. It's really hard to describe. You really have to see it to believe it. And we actually took a family photo on my birthday of this with like all six of us wearing it, and it looks like something out of a horror film. Um, I'm not going to post that one. Uh, I,
0: I think we need to do this with Cody's face.
6: we were actually surprised how expensive this was um so i would say it's probably not worth the investment unless you're going to you know turn it into a full family affair maybe it could be a show giveaway during these times like it could be something you know like you know winner of my trivia contest gets you know a a picture of hembo's face like you, you you might be able to turn it into something uh it could be part of like the you know part of the giveaway bag
0: yeah well obviously we uh we, we can we your wife knows how to do it so uh, we can figure out how to make this happen. All right, let's get into a little bit, little trivia. Yes, I have uh
6: to, to to spare us at least to start from the self mutilation that is majorly based Baseball oh, uh, fighting against the union. I have prepare, prepared some 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 trivia questions to at least uh, get our mindset off straight, so I don't get myself too heated because I will I'm I'm in a position uh, I I think to present some pretty strong opinions. But we'll start with the trivia. My first question for you today is this: Who was the first player elected to the Hall of Fame whose primary position was designated hitter? Primary position calculated as played at least half of their games at that position.
0: Half of their games. You, in order to qualify. That's a lot.
6: Yes. The Hall of Fame qualifies it differently than I do. The Hall of Fame right now only has uh, two players listed as a Hall of Famer uh, uh, whose primary position was a DH. There are actually three. And this person is the exception.
7: Uh,
0: it's, I, I guess for me, because the thing about DH – is it allowed a lot of older guys who could still hit, but couldn't play in the field to be able to, I mean, whether you're talking about Reggie Jackson, Paul Mulder George Brett became a DH, Dave Winfield, but the guy that played it the most, I, I would have to go Edgar Martinez.
6: Edgar Martinez is the first person the hall of fame qualifies as this. Frank Thomas played Craig Thompson is the correct answer to my question. At least that's how the baseball records play index qualifies it. But Edgar Martinez is, is, is recognized as the first DH by the hall of fame. And of course, as we know, Harold Baines was next. Although, uh, like you said, Paul, you, you were all over this question. Paul Molitor, another person who played DH more than any other position, but it comprised less than half of his game. So I'm going to give you that one. Very well done. You were sharp last week too, if I'm not mistaken. So you, yes, were, I you were was all, I last. mean,
4: I it was four for five last week.
6: Last week you were, you were, you were cooking with gas. Uh, this one's going to hit too close to home for some of your fans, but we'll see if you get this one right. So, which team did the A's beat the last time they won a winner take all postseason game?
0: That'd be the Minnesota Twins. That is incorrect.
8: The
6: last team they like, so we're talking winner take all game, sudden death in the postseason. That is incorrect. This was, this was, I thought, see, I are like, we thought going back to
0: down the, down.
4: the 70s? Yeah, bro.
6: That would have been the game against the Twins was not winner take all that you're thinking of.
0: It would have been the Mets then in 73.
6: That's correct. The last time the A's won a winner take all postseason game was 1973, game seven against the Mets. They're 0 9 in winner take all games since 2000, and they didn't yeah. have any of those games between 1973 and 2000. Like I said, hit too close to him. <laughs> it, you know? it, is,
0: it, is it is a stretch where you start looking. Uh, the, these last three wild card games, you go back to the early 2000s. Uh, they haven't, we haven't been the clutches of teams. Let's just say, won One a of lot the, of games, a ton of games. I will actually
6: have a question in that regard later on. But you wonder, like, how how fluky is that? Like, it's not something based on team building. It's not something based on anything other than sheer luck. Like, in any given baseball game, we know that no matter how bad your team is, you have at least a 40 percent chance of winning that game. Based on probabilities, you, you, you would have won four or five of those games, but instead 0-9. The Yankees beat you three times. Tigers beat you, you know, two years in a row. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, clutch is actually not the word I would use to describe that. I would use, I would use unlucky. Burlander. Uh, that damn Burlander. The A's are one of three teams to win at least 95 games in each of the last two years.
0: Which are the other two teams to do that? The last two seasons, you've won over 95 games. You and two other teams. Astros. The Astros is correct. I thought you'd get that one right. Yeah. Well, (laughs) there's a reason we're in the wild card game.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Everything's coming together nicely for us (laughs)
0: today.
6: I'll go Dodgers. Dodgers is incorrect. That would have been my guess too, which is why I asked you the question. No. Remember, two years ago, the Dodgers had to, had to play into play into win their division. The correct answer is the Yankees. The Yankees. See, is, that was
0: the, but that was it's, of course. Too many to me, it was either the Yankees or Dodgers.
6: That's it. Yes, the Dodgers had like 200 win seasons, but in between, they had like a 91 or 92 win season, which disqualifies them from that. That's a nice sneaky question. That's very on brand for
0: me. Yeah. Right.
6: Here's the next one for you Who was the last pitcher to throw a perfect game?
0: Roy Holiday, Roy Holiday. Cody. I love it when Cody points and then comes up with like Satchel Page.
2: <laughs> it was uh, it was Felix Hernandez with the Seattle Mariners.
6: One of you, one of you is correct. Which answer are we going with here?
2: I'm going with Roy Holiday.
6: Cody's right, kid. Cody's right. Roy Holiday was 2010. Felix Hernandez was August of 2012. You may remember in 2012. Philip Umber threw a perfect game in April. Matt Cain threw a perfect game in June. Felix Hernandez threw that perfect game in August, and we haven't had one since. That was a very bizarre like, – look, it's a very fluky incident. Oh, yeah, uh, Dallas Brayden? Brayden was – Br- yeah, Brayden was 2010, and so was Halliday. So those are like – those are your last five perfect games.
0: And, and nothing since. That's – that is – it was like a rash of perfect games and then nothing since. It, it's such a
6: fluky thing. Like, it's obviously so based on – Based on chance, because there's only been in the history of Major League Baseball 23 of them. So, like, this is extraordinarily rare. No hitters are becoming somewhat common. Let me just do a quick search here, because no hitters, if I'm not mistaken, like I, at least it feels like anecdotally to me, like we've had a lot of them lately. Verlander threw one last year. Scherzer seems to throw a no hitter every other game. So it's 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 funny. I like people celebrate hitting for the cycle. We obviously celebrate no hitters, but the perfect games are are. The, the, you know the truly great accomplishment Let's see.
0: when see uh, when was mark burley's oh
6: nine right before that so, so you see they're so great you remember all of them so since 2012 oh my gosh okay so, so over the last since 2013 we've had 24 no hitters but no perfect games
0: 24 no hitters that that is you know it, <laughs> and it's kind of shocking because everybody strikes out so much yeah. you think we'd see it more but all right there's there's obviously a lot of I think I think I think the
6: the increase in walks also though obviously contributes to this sum, and and pitchers aren't nearly as, as as likely to go deep into games either. And like you always run into this conundrum with the combined no hitter dynamic. And there's a few of those obviously in there too. Right.
0: And and how about this? Yeah, you can look on the list and go, how many of these perfect games are not thrown by all time greats?
6: <laughs> I mentioned to you, Philip Umber. Philip Umber is like might might be like one of the worst pitchers to ever do this. It's it's bizarre. Like it's Homer Bailey. Homer Bailey is another one of these guys who like he 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 got like a hundred million dollar contract. Uh, and pr- pretty much on the basis of these things. Let me just run through some of these names for you since you mentioned it. So we got Philip Umber and Matt Cain, Dallas Braden, Roy Halladay. You mentioned Mark Burley had a nice career. Obviously Randy Johnson did it. David Cohn, David Wells, Kenny Rogers, Dennis Martinez. These are some you know fairly well known people. Tom Browning, Mike Witt, Len Barker, Catfish Hunter and '68. Koufax did it, Jim Bunning, Don Larson, of course, Charlie Robertson, Addie Joss, all-time great, uh, all-time leader in whip, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Lee Richmond, and the first John Montgomery Ward. I should have asked you today, who was the first person to throw a perfect game? I'm sure you'd have given me John Montgomery Ward of Bell Fountain, Pennsylvania, 1880, 1880. A great John Montgomery. Who doesn't know that? That's. I figured it'd be a gimme. So like, I, I want to make sure I'm challenging you today. <laughs> what, you, what, you, what year is that? In 1880, he was pitching for the Grays against the Bisons. So you can see, like, it was just... That was a good game.
4: ball club, he beat. A, ni-
6: <laughs> a lot of pop in the middle of the order some punch and some punching Judy guys at the top. <laughs> well, it's amazing what we have recorded here. The Messer Street Grounds and the home plate up that day was Charles Daniels. He was he was pretty wide. He was yeah. pretty, wide to, pretty wide to lefties. Uh, at that point... I, so that this is so, eighteen eighty. That was like thirteen years before the mount was moved to his current distance. So, like they're like throwing underhand at this point, and like the batters can tell them where to throw the ball. Still,
0: <laughs> hey, perfect game. Are we gonna really compare that to,
6: to to Felix Hernandez? I'm not sure. It's I'm not sure it's quite apples to apples. This
0: this might be the greatest perfect game when you're like trying to help the guy hit, and you still throw a perfect game. He beat he beat Pud Galvin that day, who's a legitimately great
6: Hall of Fame pitcher. Pud Galvin was a stud, so that must have been a really nice tight battle that afternoon. It's good stuff. Who knew that we'd, we'd dive into that today? How many more we got? I got another question for you here. All right. Um, this one, I feel like I may have asked you in some way, shape, or form, but if not, there are three different players that have won an MVP award as both an infielder and an outfielder. I'm going to give you the option of naming any of them and give you the credit.
0: He had to win it as an infielder and an outfielder? Yeah, so multiple MVPs, at least one of the Robin
6: Yacht. Robin Yacht is correct. What positions did he play
0: very well Short done. center
6: field. Short and center field, that's correct. Good for you. you are fire steady kid. Uh I don't know. Um Let me give you the errors. Like thinking th- think 30s, 40s, and 50s. <laughs> and, and and both of these guys were first baseman when they won as an infield as infielder. I'm giving you a three decade hit here. Come well, on, come on. What else? What more can I do?
0: <laughs> I have no clue.
6: Stan I knew Musial, the one. Stan Musial did it. Hank Greenberg did it.
0: Stan Musial won one as an
6: outfielder and a first baseman? Yeah, Sam Musial, if I'm not mistaken, was the first player to pl- to, re- uh, to play a 1,000 games in the infield and the outfield. And the numbers suggest he was actually a really good defender at both of them. Uh, really underrated, all-time great player.
0: He, he, he will have the one stat that will always go down as the most mind-blowing stat of all time <laughs> is the fact that he had the same exact amount of hits at home and on the road it's It's an incredible,
6: It's an incredible note. It's It's any 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 baseball fan who grew up reading those books, like we did eighteen, fifteen plus eighteen, fifteen equals sixteen uh, 36, um thirty six, thirty. One thing I want to mention quickly about Stan Musial, which I think I think you could argue, this is this is obviously not where you intended to go today, but I think you could argue Stan Musial is the most underrated all-time great player. Yeah. I like sharing the story with whoever will listen. So in I think it was in nineteen fifty five, around that year, the Sporting News set out to create uh, an all-decade team uh, in the ten years after World War II, because um, obviously during World War II a lot of, a lot of you know play was compromised because of players leaving for the service, et cetera. And um, one of the voters for that award was Joe Cronin. Joe Cronin during that time, during that entire decade, was the manager and general manager of the Red Sox. So he got to see the, the entirety of Ted Williams' prime. When he was asked who the best player of the last decade was, he didn't say Ted Williams he said Stan Musial. For someone to have watched Ted Williams play every day for a decade and come to that conclusion, I think goes to show you how respected Musial was at the time. I think it goes without saying that he was an all-time great who's often underrepresented in history.
9: Why,
0: why is that? I
6: think, as it relates to Stan Musial, like, so the, the, the great all-time, some of these great all-time players, obviously, with, with, with Williams, he has like, the most famous stats ever. The other, the other legendary players a lot of them, at least, were all these Yankees. So Musial, who was sort of an unassuming personality from sort of an unassuming town, and though he did play for what was a, a legacy franchise, he didn't he didn't carry himself like it. Stan Musial is this guy, who, like who in the offseason had this Italian restaurant in St. Louis, and like sort you know became sort of active in, in politics. Like he was just sort of the everyman, right? And I think because he didn't uh, achieve five five hundred home runs, just gets lift off gets left off a lot of those lists, and also wasn't an outstanding postseason performer either. So it's funny because. Like Ted Williams is someone who, who, I think his closest direct contemporary is Stan Musial, but they're thought of on very like even even, I think mean it's fair to say and safe to say that people consider Joe DiMaggio a greater player than Stan Musial. For Joe DiMaggio, for much of his life, he was introduced as the greatest living ball player at all these events, and Stan Musial was at a lot of those events. To me, that's it's dishonest. Like Stan Musial is a greater player than Joe DiMaggio, and in inarguably at least, a comparable player to
0: Ted Williams. Yeah, it's not like Stan the man played in Tampa.
6: <laughs> no, uh, the, the, the Cardinals are the most successful, you know, franchise in National League history, and I think that goes without saying. Uh, and he's their best player ever. Like Stan usual was baseball's perfect knight, as the as the then commissioner put it when he got you know his statue erected. Like he was a legend. It's just curious how history goes. Like at, at the time of during his career, Mel Ott, Mel Ott was voted the most popular player in baseball, but now he's like an afterthought in any sort of historical. Uh, you know, run around that you make. You know, people always forget about Mel Ott. At the time, he was considered the, the same goes for Christy Matheson. I don't know why history remembers people the way it does. It's a very curious exercise. But those are a few examples of guys who I think at the time were considered all-timers. And as history went on, I think celebrity sometimes overshadows production. And those, in the, the case of those three players, I think, that, I think that's fair to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, the fact that they've written books and they've just been so romantic about – the great Damaj and all this guy, and like his numbers don't even sniff Stan Musial. They're not.
6: They're not close. I, there's there's so much, especially at the time when they played, so much value, so much player value was sort of decided by the few writers that were sort of in, not in charge of, but but purveying the most information. So like obviously the sports media now is so vast and there's just so much inundation. But then like so much about a player's public. Portrayal or persona, or just whatever those writers decided. So Joe DiMaggio, who was a highly respected figure, who uh the writers romanticized about, who, uh, who he and he was very much protected as a result of it, has this like sterling historical reputation. When, as I think, the more we learn about him, he wasn't necessarily the you know the 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 perfect knight, if you will, that history has remembered him as. But I think. Like, those guys at the time have so much say in it. Like, if you were really good friends with Grantland Rice, then history was just going to remember you fondly. And if you played in a smaller market, and if you didn't kowtow to reporters, and if you said, you know, anything controversial once in a while they didn't like you rogers hornsby is a really good example of that rogers hornsby is, is one of the most uh, hated players in baseball history you look at his the back of his baseball card the guy might be the greatest right-handed hitter that ever lived so it's funny how how it goes but i think history over the course of so many decades wrote itself based on the, the opinions of these few people and now we're just sort of left to live with those consequences
0: well and i think of Derek jeter i mean mlb <laughs> network just did what 64 hours or whatever the hell it was about Derek Jeter. I'm not saying Derek Jeter's not a great player. I'm not saying he shouldn't be a hall of famer. Obviously he should be a hall of famer and he's a great player, but there's an difference between the greats and and, and that upper level. I, is he even a top 10 shortstop all time? He's a top
6: 10 shortstop all time. Only if you, only if you build in the offense the way that, so this is, this is an important distinction to make. Like, I think people give Derek Jeter a lot of credit for having stayed at shortstop, right? My retort is always, he shouldn't have stayed at shortstop. It was overwhelmingly clear that Alex Rodriguez was better than him at the time that he came, and it became very clear that Derek Jeter should have probably moved to center field or a corner outfield spot, or first base, or even second base, much, like, years, like, probably in his early 30s. I'm not giving Derek Jeter It's like the people that argue, Jeff Ken is a great hitting second baseman. Yes, he was a good hitter, but... He wasn't a good second baseman, so why am I giving him credit for hitting well in a position that he was not good at playing defensively? And Derek Jeter, it wasn't just a bad shortstop. Like to be totally candid, Derek Jeter is like one of the worst defensive players in the history of Italy baseball. Wow! Like, no, 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 it's it's not. It, it, uh, you know, I'm one who is I'm one who is sort of a beholden to the numbers. We have all these modern ways of measuring defense now, and Derek Jeter cost this team something approximating 250 runs which over the course of his career is something approximating 25 wins. Derek Jeter destroyed his team on defense. Now, they still won all these championships, right? They had a bad defensive catcher, a bad defensive center fielder. And that didn't stop them. I think it goes to show, like, maybe we overvalue defense. Maybe, maybe that's something that we, you know, we prioritized early in the game's history because there were so, much, so many more balls in play, and now it doesn't really matter that much. And I'd much ha- rather have a shortstop that accrues 3,000 hits and plays defense like Jeter, then I have a shortstop like Omar Viscale, who couldn't hit the bright side of a barn but, you know, feels everything in sight. Hitting is still by far the most important thing. So, yeah, of course, taking that into account, he's a top-ten shortstop. But to be clear, he was an abhorrent shortstop
0: defensively. Could you say that and wear that shirt and walk around Manhattan saying <laughs> Derek Jeter stinks at shortstop? <laughs> <laughs> um Definitely not these days. <laughs> not these days. <laughs> hey, um, I was thinking about this, and I know you did a, a thing for Buster Only about money and players, but just if it is true that the owners really only want to play around 50-something games because they don't want to lose a ton of money, and the money comes once you get into the postseason, that's when the TV money kicks in, then really it makes sense that you really don't start playing until, like, August. I think um, I think there's this misconception right now
6: going around, and it's it's easy to see why, but, like, because there's all these pieces every day about it and because people are so desperate to have baseball back. To be clear, like, this is the order in which – this is the order for, for people yearning for baseball to come back. It's the fans first. It is a big step, the players second. And then the owners way down here at third, like that is exceedingly clear. The play, the, the fans want baseball back more than the players want to play, and more than the owners want the players to play. That has become overwhelmingly clear. It is June eighth, June eighth. The NBA is going to return July thirty first, and they already have their return to play proposal down pat and approved. Baseball's plan was to to, to return July fourth. They're not close. Can't like they're. Like I suppose they could get close between now and the end of the week or you know theoretically this stuff could happen immediately. But we asked Buster only on our show this morning, what like what's our deadline here? And he said three weeks ago. <laughs> so like that's that's what we're dealing with. But I think it's like you're at you're exactly right. You hit the nail on the head in saying that collectively, collectively the owners want to play less because they know the regular season is going to cost them money and they know the postseason is going to make them money. And I understand why the players are heated about it. The numbers you mentioned earlier, I was chatting with Cody about this as well. The numbers make it overwhelmingly clear that Tony Clark is operating from a position of inferiority right now. The players got raked over the coals, raked over the coals when it came to the last collective bargaining agreement. And I have some numbers for you to sort of put this in a perspective, Okay, So there have been uh, three CBAs since 2003, in addition to the current one. During the current collective bargaining agreement, the average player salary has declined, has declined. And the one before that, it increased by 29 percent. And the one before that, it increased 18 percent. And then the one before that, it increased 25 percent. For there to be a collective bargaining agreement in which player salary declines is a damning indictment on the on the players' union. It just is. So with with the CBA coming to a uh, close at the end of next season, theoretically, we'll, we'll, who knows what we'll be at that point? I understand why the players are outraged because the owners are the owners who are operating from a position of strength as it relates to the cba are now deciding to pinch pennies over this but you sort of understand where they're coming from too because they've made their they've sort of made made it clear like without the fans we're going to lose all this money last week on this show on this program you we, we talked about this i said they're going to propose something like an 80 game season and and an 80 per, like and 20 more salary cuts so it's sort of 80 and 80 today it looks like it's about 75 and 75 i'm surprised I'm surprised the players are acting like this is so outrageous. This to me is a, is an act of, of, of goodwill and compromise by the owners who up to this point have been, I think we'd agree far too stingy, but it, it is June 8th. It is June 8th. This is the middle of the baseball season. These guys, I think need to get their act together and come to the bargaining table in good faith as well. I understand that they're angered by the, by the process that this is something that should have happened in April, but, it's time for the players to meet these guys in the middle because this is a this is what I would describe as a good faith gesture and a big leap, a big leap from where we were just a week ago, um, and I
0: don't really see it any other way. Let me tell you this: it's going to be a bad look come Thursday, because come Thursday we're going to hear now on the tee Rory McElroy. now on the tee Dustin Johnson, we're going to start on the tee Tiger Woods. And we're going to see – you know, NASCAR is one thing, and not everybody watches NASCAR. But once the PGA Tour is teeing it up, everybody's going to be going, okay, We, as you mentioned, there's a plan for the NHL. There's a plan for the NBA. Football – now, football is going to have the same problems as baseball because at some point football – If they don't have luxury suites, if they don't have people in the stands, they don't have parking and beer and food and everything, they're going to go to their players and say the same thing. But as of right now, football's planning to go training camp. It's at everybody's facility going to do exhibition, going to do the regular season and baseball still sitting out. Man, it's going to be a bad look. It's it is. I wouldn't say that it's already beyond
6: repair, but I think there's already
0: going to be a large
6: contingent of people that hold this against them, no matter what happens. But think about this, like at minimum, we've been led to believe that players and teams are going to need three weeks. So, and t- like, and we are not best. I can tell all that close to reaching this, reaching a conclusion here. You, you are, you are fast forwarding three weeks from whenever that happens. So like, we're just losing such valuable real estate. Cause right now baseball wouldn't have any competition, but I'll tell you what, like, there's gonna be the, the NBA is gonna ramp up at the end of July, and people are gonna be yearning for that. Like that's that. Those are in, those. Those games are all gonna matter, and then they're gonna play like all day basketball for the month of August. It's gonna be incredible for basketball fans. If if baseball has no skin in the game at that time, wow. baseball's bro, you know it as well as I do. Baseball is going to lose fans that they'll never get back. And this is already a sport that's lost. You know, attendance has dropped 10 million in the last dozen years. Like, this is a sport right now that is operating from a position of inferiority without this struggle. So I understand that we have two entrenched sides and their season hasn't started. So the NBA is operating from a position of, of advantage in that sense because they didn't have that much farther to go, at least in the regular season. But to me, this this gesture today by the owners is a good enough one that we should – that that. that you know the players and them should be able to reach a decent sort of good faith conclusion like I think we can both agree everyone's losing here but like if you if you end up if you end up reaching a point where it's it's beyond repair like you're you're, you're gonna lose way more than just you know 10 15 20 million dollars of 3 for each team which ultimately is what we're talking about here we're talking about tens of millions of dollars for these teams and like that's what much it costs to sign a fourth starter not for a club like yours but for most clubs
0: uh, we need to start Himbo.com and start selling that shirt.
6: <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that would be a terribly successful venture, but, I, but I will say if you guys want to start, you know, putting together, you know, a little variety pack for the trivia, I'm happy to contribute my smile.
0: <laughs> and it'll all go to COVID relief.
6: Let me say this. Let me say this. You are, you're studying up. I can tell you're reading your almanacs. You're spending a lot of time on the baseball reference play index because you have been much better lately. And you're you're deconstructing my logic better with our trivia questions. You are reading my you're reading the room better. You're taking your time answering. Like you are onto something here, and I'm I'm impressed with Cody's hit rate as well. Who sort of who comes in on his white horse every once in a while to save you from catastrophe? It's because I've been drinking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? When you're when you're a man of our ilk, there's nothing be better than than to drink a lot and just watch Ken Burns baseball. That's what I've been doing. So it seems like it's working well for both of us.
0: You should see my Costco cart when I'm checking out. <laughs> <laughs> I've been loading up, my friend. <laughs> uh,
4: okay.
0: Uh,
6: desperate times golf for call go for desperate measures. By the way, I I did I did look this up out of curiosity before I let you go. I was I was curious, like if. If we do have a a seventy six game season or something like that, like who who might be the likeliest person to bat four um, hundred? And it surprised me; no one has batted four hundred through the first seventy six games of a season since Tony Fernandez in nineteen ninety nine. Nomar got close, Chipper Tony Jones sort of got hit. close, Cody Bellinger got close. Yeah, that, that like I was going to ask that as a trivia question. I thought to myself, like you are not getting that right. Like there is, I could give you five hints and you are not going to get that right. So,
0: not oh, I am going Gwynn like Tony Gwynn or yeah. Wade Boggs. Of course, that would be, like
6: that would be the natural guess. But Tony Gwynn batted betting below four hundred, uh you know, through, through the first seventy six games of the ninety four season. But Tony Fernandez, the last player to bat four hundred through seventy six games,
0: who to have thunk it? You are the best, my friend. Be well, be safe, and we'll talk to you next week. Same to you, boys. Take care. Paul Himbikitis, better known as Himbo, right here on A's Cast Live. Coming up next, we truly break down the draft. We get you ready for Wednesday's draft, and something on today happened in A's history that's very special we'll have all that for you next right here on A's cast live
10: where will you go first will it be familiar streets or perhaps unknown roads wherever you may go Lexus will welcome you back with exceptional offers on exceptional vehicles. Find out all the ways a Lexus can be yours at Lexus.com. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
11: Here's what we want everyone to do. Count all the hugs you haven't given, all the hands you haven't held, all the dinners you didn't share with friends, the trips you haven't taken. Keep track of them. Each one means one less person vulnerable, One less person exposed and one step closer to a healthier community. So for now, keep your distance, but don't lose count. We'll have some catching up to do. Kaiser Permanente. Thrive.
7: Chevron and its brands are committed to reliably providing fuel to customers, even during an emergency. The safety and health of workers, customers, and the communities where Chevron operates are primary concerns. In Northern California, Chevron and Texaco stations are open for business, supplying quality fuels in a safe manner.
12: COVID-19 is more than a health crisis. It's a financial crisis for many California families. In this moment, you shouldn't have to worry about keeping the lights on. That's why at PG&E, we want you to know about our programs to reduce bills for customers facing economic hardship, that we've suspended all disconnections because of non-payment, and we can help you save money by using less energy. To learn more, visit safetyactioncenter.pge.com.
13: Right now, staying connected is more important than ever, and fast, reliable internet from Xfinity can help. We have plans to fit every budget, with speeds up to a gig, all at Xfinity.com. We'll ship you a self-install kit, on us, to make setup quick, safe, and easy. No tech visit required. And our simple digital tools will help you manage your account online. At Xfinity, we're committed to keeping you connected. Find great offers and value today at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.
7: Hi, this is Ramon Laureano. And the
14: throw is going to be in time at the plate. Laureano firing a strike all the way on
7: the line. And you're listening to Ace Cast, your 24-7 destination for Ace Baseball.
0: Eric Loggenhagen is going to join us from Fangraphs. Who are the A's going to take at 26? <laughs> You got no idea. I mean, at that point, you know, at the end of the draft, it's funny. They have to do these mock drafts. So if you remember back in the day, I used to do a show with Rick Bucher, who was on ESPN forever, um, now Bleach Report. I'm sure he still does it on Bleach Report. But he told us the goods about the NBA mock drafts. And he said, you never had, you never on your first try put what you really thought. Because you're going to end up doing. I mean, these these guys. How many, Commander? How many mock drafts will the football guys, Mel Kuyper, Todd McShay? How many will they put out before the NFL draft?
2: Todd, 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 Todd. Uh, I would God, say. God. I want to say they do about four or five, right? I would say there's oh, always more than that. There's always Mel Kiper mock draft three Todd McShay yeah, mock
0: they, draft five like or eight. So they start you out with number one and by the time they get to like six seven eight whatever it is that's what they really think but how could you i mean how could you possibly know who is going to go at number 26 for the a's i mean you can have like a some ideas as eric joins us now eric great to have you back on the program
8: hey how's it going
0: Uh, It's going well. We're just we're kind of laughing, you know. You know, everybody's got their mock drafts, and and like when you start getting down to where the A's are at number twenty six, hell, you may have a group of players you may think may be available, but it's so hard to pinpoint saying at number twenty six they will take this guy.
8: Right? Yeah. I don't think any. There's no like false precision going on here. I don't think anyone's claiming, barring some situations where you have. Uh, Intel where a, a player is strongly attached to a team with like some sort of pre-draft deal that's often under slot uh, at that point in the draft things are so highly variable that no it's, we are predicting the, the mock draft industry is predicting who uh, is, is in a general range by talking to the, the player's agent and then we're uh, sort of overlapping that with the team's general historical tendencies and any intel that we might have based on scouting directors and GMs being at games in uh, late May, basically. And, of course, that year, this year we don't have that because there haven't been games in late May. Um, but, all, I mean, like, all you have to do is go back and look historically at mock drafts. And, like, you know, uh, Kylie and I, Kylie McDaniel of ESPN, like, us and the MLB.com guys – have been tussling for mock draft supremacy for each of the last three years. Uh, And we typically get between like eight and 12, right? On any given year in the first round. And, you know, we'll no scope a couple second round kids just based on team tendencies and and random tidbits that we get about players being attached to teams. Like the, the point is not to get the name next to the team, right? It's to get the player's general range, right? And talk through what the contingencies are at the very top of the draft because um, at the very top of the draft is where things are somewhat crystalline, and we do have some idea of how, if one domino falls one way, how the rest of them might. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's inexact and more about uh, talking through generalizations than it is attaching specific players to specific teams, especially at the back of the draft.
0: You know, one guy that has been linked to the A's, I've seen on a couple mock drafts, is Nick Lofton, the shortstop, out of Baylor. Do you think that's a possibility for, for the A's at number 26?
8: I suppose so. I mean, he's in that. If you're looking at the A's drafts historically, this is like the type of, like Jeremy Ironman, like this is the type of fit where it's a multi-year college performer who plays in up-the-middle position. Uh, there are some holes with Ironman it was his junior year, he struck out a lot and filled out unexpectedly. Uh, And with Lofton, we didn't really have a junior year, right? It was just about if teams saw him at the, the Shriners college classic in Texas, big college tournament that had Baylor and Oklahoma and like uh, a bunch of huge schools playing in Houston, uh, Lofton went nuts at that tournament. And so, yeah, like every team was there. Every team saw that. Uh, and he, I have Lofton going in the middle of the first round. I have him going to Texas at 14 as things currently stand. There's a big vacuum for college bats in the middle of round one, uh, that I think a couple guys are going to move up and fill, whether it's Lofton or Justin Foskey at Mississippi state, uh, or Austin Wells, the catcher slash first baseman in Arizona, like some of those guys are going to buoy up into the middle of first, uh, middle of the first round. But yeah, like Lofton is the type of player who the A's have taken in the past and who projects to be there at the back of the first round.
0: So you got the A's, uh, Aaron, is Sabato, first baseman out of North Carolina? Is that who you have the A's going with?
8: Right. Yes. Sabato is a draft eligible sophomore from North Carolina. He's relatively positionless. uh, First base only for me. But, yeah, he's a a big-bodied, power-hitting dude who crushed ACC pitching for two years.
0: That sounds like an ace player to me. Big dude who can hit.
8: Right. Like, if you're, again, if you're looking at Oakland's drafts historically, it has been this type of guy. It has been college performers largely, with, you know, the Kyler Murray exception, uh, big time college performers from bigger conferences. Uh, and yeah, Sabato is that to a T.
0: You know, a lot of people love to take shortstops because usually shortstops are the best athletes on the team. Uh, they're very versatile. Like you can move them around the diamond. Obviously, you know, like you look at our own Matt Chapman, you look at Arenado, for example, these guys move to third base. Uh, usually they're good enough athletes that you can put them at any of the, uh, any of the outfield positions. Um, talk about how shortstops, people love taking this position because it's versatility.
8: Right. It's some of it is be, is what you described, right? Is theoretically, anyone who plays shortstop at the lower levels, like most of these guys who play pro baseball played shortstop if they throw right handed, then they played shortstop on their high school teams. A lot of them did it on their college teams as well, because they were the best athlete on the team. And then as you move up through competitive baseball, uh things start to sort of filter down, right? And then uh, the opposite is also true because there's downward pressure being applied at the big league level to the places at the bottom of the defensive spectrum, right? So Miguel Cabrera moves from third base to left field to first base over the course of his career, right? Chipper Jones, same thing, moves from third base to left field for a while. People start to trickle down the defensive spectrum toward first base, and it is always the best hitters who end up playing forever and moving to first base later in their careers And so if you're taking a guy who can only play first base now from day one, not only is he competing with everybody else who currently plays first base, but he's competing with big league hitters who, as they get older and slower, start to trickle down the defensive spectrum and occupy first base in their later years. Hanley Ramirez is another good example of this, right? So Miguel Sano probably moves to first base eventually down from third base. So it is tougher to profile if all you can do is play first base, because the players that you're competing with one of those 30 jobs for are not only all the other minor league first basemen and all the other big league first basemen, but the best hitters from other positions who, as they age, are going to have to play there too.
0: And and the guy that is so key now in baseball, it'll be different this year because they're going to expand the rosters. But having talked to, you know, I've spoke with Bob Melvin about this multiple times. When you look at a guy like Chad Pender, When you look at a guy like Mark Canna, they have been so versatile for the A's. Like when when Mark Canna came over in the Rule 5 draft, we had no idea where he was going to play. You know, is he going to be a first baseman? Is he going to be a DH? Hell, he was playing center field for us last year, which was so key. And he was terrific. And then Chad Pender, who's a career middle, really a shortstop, he can play any infield position. He now can play any outfield position, and StatCast showed that he gets great jumps as an outfielder. How tough is it to project for a guy like Chad Pender? How can you project he's going to be able to be this versatile?
8: Yeah, it's really difficult. Uh, It is a thing that more and more teams are installing during the player development process once these guys get into pro ball. It is pretty rare for someone to do it as an amateur to start moving around. But yeah, it's super valuable to have someone who can play multiple positions. It, it allows you to have uh, flexibility on your roster. It allows you to roster guys who maybe don't play a position who are just on your roster because they can hit. Uh, and because you have multiple other players on, the, on the, the active roster who can play all over the place, uh, you, you enable that. Uh, and yeah, like Sheldon, same thing with anyone who's competing for the A's second base job this year can basically play other positions too. Uh, whether it's Sheldon Noisy or, or Franklin Barreto or Jorge Mateo, whoever it is, like all these guys can kind of shift around. And if you install that type of versatility and experience at multiple positions in guys it, during their time in the minors, if they don't work out as everyday players, they're more likely to be able to play a relevant bench role. And also it lets you fit different puzzle pieces together uh, as they traverse the minors, right? You like the Ben Zobris types let you, you know, you can platoon at various positions, right? Like you can, it allows you to have more defensive flexibility late in the game. If you want to bring in someone like Buddy Reed to play an elite defensive center field, uh, because like Franklin Bredo is not very good out there, but you're, you're up by two with the ninth inning. Buddy Reed should probably be in the game. Like, so all, all the, Versatile defensive players, I think, are going to be huge going forward. Even as teams start to look at uh, playing four outfielders against hitters who uh, hit the ball in the air like 60% of the time or more, you're going to have to kick one of your middle infielders out to the outfield and having that experience is valuable too.
0: Okay, so I have your mock draft 2.0 that was updated today. I got CBS Sports mock draft and I got – Uh, Sports Weekly, formerly known as Baseball Weekly, I got their mock draft. All three of you got Torkelson from Arizona State, the first baseman, going first. Austin Martin, the outfielder from Vanderbilt, going second. So, Tigers, Orioles, and then Lacey, the left-handed pitcher from Texas A&M, going to the Marlins. All of you guys have the first same three picks.
8: Sure. I mean, again, if you read the comments... Under the Orioles section, you see that there are contingencies that the Orioles, whether this is a smokescreen to try to get Austin Martin's number down because he's a Boris client, uh, we, we can't know for sure. But the Orioles we know have made calls to players who are generally in the 8 to 10 range on boards to try to get uh, – to see if they can get them to sign for way, way under slot so they can spread slot money around later in the draft. I think it's just likely that they end up taking Martin, who I think – will be the best player on their board at that spot, but they are experimenting with what they might be able to save at that pick. And Mike Elias, while he was in Houston, did this exact thing with Carlos Correa. They cut a deal with Carlos Correa, Max Freed. Uh, had Max Freed been willing to take less money than Carlos Correa, the Astros just would have taken Max Freed instead of Correa. And they used that extra money that they saved at that pick rather than taking Byron Buxton, who was more expensive. They used that extra money to take Lance McCullers later. It's possible that the Orioles explore something like this, uh, it, the situation has to be right. They have to like not only the player that they're going to get it to, but who they're going to get with their next couple picks in the comp and second round as well. Uh, and so like their teams are doing work early this week to see who might be available at those picks. And I don't think if there's a change at two that it'll, uh, it'll be something that we know until late on Wednesday, right before the draft.
0: By the way, earlier you said get you about eight to 12, right. If you get 8 to 12 right in the first round, you blow away the football guys. I mean, that's an amazing number.
15: Right, this is part of
8: the the reason it's been easier to do in baseball in my opinion is there are just there's are more signals. You know, it's the ways that we've been able to piece it together in recent years is yes, you look at team tendencies and uh, yes, you're looking at you know, you're talking to agents and you, you, you have to be there in person historically for baseball games to scout players. I mean, the industry is moving away from that, and moving more toward video, but in football, you can watch a lot of All-22 and the, the scouts who are at games in person aren't necessarily out in the open for the media to see, but at a baseball game, you have to be in the scout section to watch the guys, to watch the pitchers throw. And so we all see you sitting there, and if you know who, what these guys look like and who they work for, it becomes much easier to uh, place players or teams. And because the agents are such an important part of the baseball draft process, because there's not hard slotting, uh, and so you have to understand signability, so teams have to engage with the agents, the media members can also then engage with the agents and glean information from them. And that's just not a thing that happens in football and basketball. So there, are, and you know, pre-draft workouts for kids, which again isn't a thing this year. But if a kid posts a picture of a major league stadium in early June or late May because he's there for a pre-draft workout, you know that the team is on that kid. And so sometimes you just put that kid in that team's mock draft spot, and you're right. Uh, so yeah, like there are all sorts of different ways to try to piece this together from a mock draft standpoint. We're all going to do worse this year. Uh, because we just have less avenues of information because of the pandemic. Uh, but, yeah, that is why we do better than than the football folks.
0: So, you've updated A's prospects. You have the top 36. And I'm looking at the uh, A's website. And y- your top three is, you know, MLB.com's top three. But the thing that bugs me about this, and maybe you can clarify, is Jesus Lazardo pitched in a playoff game. I I don't think he's a prospect anymore. You know, A.J. Puck helped the A's win 97 games and get into the postseason. Sean Murphy came up and helped the A's get into – I mean, I don't see these guys. Once you get to the big leagues, why do we still list these guys as prospects?
8: Well, you have to have some amount of – you have to have, like, a defined amount of playing time. And I guess if it were you, you would say if someone is up, period – That they're not a prospect anymore. What do you do with the guys who have been sent back down? If you come up and make a spot start and go back down, you're not a prospect anymore. Like, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. We use rookie eligibility, it's the industry standard. Uh, You know, it's, I don't know, like, you have to have some amount of demarcation somewhere. You have to have some firm definition as to who you consider a prospect and who you don't. And we just all use. Rookie eligibility. If you used their big league debut and that was it, you're gonna have a lot of situations where guys come up and then go back down and then you don't see them again for a while. And then they exist in this weird limbo where no one's covering them or talking about them. And often during that time they change. And so I don't think it makes sense just to to assume based on, you know, AJ Puck throwing eleven innings that we know about him or that he's you know, if he's rookie eligible, I, I I think he should still be considered a prospect.
0: Okay, I, I you, you get where I'm going, right? Hey, there's Lozardo pitched in a playoff game. I mean, it's not like I mean, he he's pitched at the highest level in the postseason. You're, does that make a little sense? I
8: I mean, what you're saying is factually correct, but as far as distinguishing him from someone who's got 50 big league innings, uh, no, like. No, I don't. I don't think so. I, I think that considering what Jesus Lazardo's value is based on what you expect his role to be, uh, which is very different than the one that he he pitched in in the postseason. And same goes with AJ Puck late last year. Like these are starting pitching prospects. Uh, and so no, I, I don't think the role that he played last year is is at all indicative of what he's going to be doing going forward. And and so no, like the, I I think that yeah, there are situations. Where I understand what you're saying, like. That this is, he was stress tested to a degree, and you certainly know something more about him now than you did before you saw him in the big leagues at all. Uh, But yeah, like I I can't see just moving a guy off of consideration for a prospect list based on very little big league performance. By the way, that audio. He's still rookie eligible. Yeah,
0: I, 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 that, that audio you heard was from uh, CBS Sports. That's probably when you do these shows through your computer, that if something starts running on your computer, it's like panic time. It's like, what is that playing? So sorry about that. Uh, let's get away from Lazardo, Puck, and Murphy, because our fan base obviously knows these guys. Who are the next guys down the line on your 36 that you're excited about as A's prospects?
8: I think the guy who I was most excited about last summer was Brian Buelvas, who was here in the AZL uh, later in the summer. He was down in the Dominican earlier in the year and then came back here when it was just clear that he was better than everybody else in the DSL. He's not all that different than a lot of the high school outfielders who are going to go in the middle to the back of the first round in Wednesday's draft. Like, He's a very advanced hitter. Uh, He was 17 all year. He turned 18 today. Uh, And performed in pro baseball last year, and like having watched him for most of last summer because the A's complex is ten miles from my house, uh, I'm pretty confident that he's got like real bat to ball skills. And if he stays in center field, even if he doesn't grow into much power, like he's he's not a huge framed kid. This isn't like you know Christian Yelich or Giancarlo Stanton or someone who you expect to put on like forty pounds of muscle uh, into their early twenties. The kid doesn't have that kind of frame. But if he stays in center field and hits like I think he's going to, then he's got a really good chance of being an everyday player. So Voss is, is the big one who I think uh, A's fans might not know about. Uh, and then I still think, you know, James Caprellian may probably know about too. He yeah. and Dalton Jeffries and Grant Holmes have all had serious injury issues. Caprellian was like 80 to 91 last year coming off of more shoulder stuff. Uh, and then, you know, his velocity started to climb later into the year. He was 90, 94. And then this spring, he was two to five. So he's not like 94, 97, touch a nine like he was when they, when they acquired him. But I think, you know, he, he's got real velocity again. His breaking stuff has remained good. He threw a bunch of strikes last year. I still think he's going to be a contributor on the pitching staff this year. So don't sleep on him. And then the other guy I want to mention is uh, Wanderson Charles, who's towards the bottom of the list. This dude's like 96 to 99. I'll show you a plus split. I'll show you a plus slider. He's built like Lorenzo Neal, uh, and he just ha- he just has no idea where it's going. He's 23. It's a little late to to be optimistic that that stuff is going to come, but if it does, then you've got like a late inning arm on your hands because his stuff is really good. Uh, so those are the guys who you know the site, the the list is up on the site. Um, it's not a very good farm system. And I think it's going to be the worst farm system in baseball once those top handful of guys graduate this year, assuming that we have baseball, fingers crossed. Um, But, but yeah, there are some interesting dudes at the bottom and some, I think, you know, the reason the system is shallow is because there hasn't been much in the international department the last couple of years. They were in the penalty box for their 2016 class, which hasn't really worked out. They went two years without really signing anybody because they were in that penalty box. And then last year they spent, the whole wad on Robert Poisson, who's got a chance to be a star. But, you know, you put all your eggs into that basket, so there's not a lot of depth in the system right now.
0: You know, just looking at this and knowing, you do this for every team, right?
8: Yeah, so, yeah, it's not 36 guys for every team. It's variable depending on how I think the system, how deep the system is. But, yeah, I do it for every team.
0: I mean, you, you mentioned Poisson. He's 17 years old. I mean, we were just talking about a guy who turned 18 today. When, when you look at this around baseball, talk about the ages and just how young some of their teenagers.
8: Yeah, this, the, the rules allow international players to sign at 16 and the best, the best big leaguers are the ones who typically debut at 19, 20, 21. And if that's impossible for college guys to do, and you know, it's, It's every year there's a a player or two who, as a teenager, reaches the big leagues, whether it's Justin Upton or Adrian Beltre, uh, and Alex Rodriguez, Juan Soto, and these are the guys who are typically superstars. Like As we've studied what is meaningful to, to try to draw from these guys' performance, it's the guys who are young for the level that they're playing at, young relative to their peers, that includes the draft players too, the high schoolers who are 17, on draft day and the college players who are uh, just shy of 21, they are just more likely to be good historically. Like there's, it's just those six months of development, those nine months of development when you're 17, 18 years old, that's a big deal like for your physicality. And so yeah, Poisson was arguably the best player in his signing class from the time he was 14, 15 years old. He had a deal with the Braves that was nixed because of their international scandal involving bonus packaging with Kevin Maiton in that class. And so he hit the open market again. And yeah, he's a, he's a giant frame switch hitting shortstop. He's got a chance to, to grow into that range where he is athletic enough that he still stays at short, but also has grown into significant power. And those are the guys who turn into superstars. That's what Xander Bogarts and Correa and A-Rod, like all of these guys at age 16, 17, were built like this 6'3, 180, and they just developed in the right way. And you know, the thing about Poisson and anyone who's 17, especially from the international group, that we don't know is if they're going to hit or not, right? They just haven't faced good pitching consistently to this point. So, that's the biggest variable that we don't really know. Uh, having watched Poisson versus state-side pitching in the fall, and then having seen how much muscle he put on over the winter when he arrived at the complex this spring, uh, I'm, I'm Pretty excited about him, but yeah, guys like this bust all the time.
0: All right, let's end on this. What is the number for you that you need to hit with your mock draft where these players match up, where you're like, you're pounding your chest going, I nailed it?
8: Uh, I think it's, it's more relative to what the other folks have done rather than just a, a number for me. I'm always shooting to do. I forget how many it was that Callis nailed uh, in a row years ago. It was like twelve or sixteen or something ridiculous. Like that's what you're always trying to do. It's not feasible to hope that you're going to do it. And I know Jim says that it'll never happen again. It certainly takes an amount of luck uh, to do that. If I get seven right on Wednesday, I'll be stoked about that. Um, but it's like playing it's like playing Jenga, and the Orioles block is at the very bottom of the tower. And if they do something kooky on Wednesday, everyone's mock draft power is just going to come tumbling to the ground, which is why the important thing to focus on is we're funneling dope to the public about, you know, what might occur on Wednesday, rather than, you know, shaking up a magic eight ball and hoping that it comes up Austin Martin. Hey,
0: great stuff. We always love having you on the program. Be well, have a good time on Wednesday and we'll talk to you soon.
15: Thanks guys. You too.
0: Yeah, that's good stuff right there. By the way, there was a name mentioned in that conversation that got Cody fired up. You'll find out what that name, who that is, next on A's Cast Live.
10: You don't need to understand how available adaptive variable suspension works or how pre-collision cameras detect pedestrians in low light. You don't need to understand any of the craft that went into the Lexus ES to feel it with outstanding connectivity and standard Lexus Safety System Plus 2.0. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
7: LSS Plus 2.0 and the pre-collision system with pedestrian detection are not a substitute for safe and attentive driving practices. See owner's manual for additional limitations and details.
11: Here's what we want everyone to do. Count all the hugs you haven't given, all the hands you haven't held, all the dinners you didn't share with friends, the trips you haven't taken. Keep track of them. Each one means one less person vulnerable, one less person exposed, and one step closer to a healthier community. So for now, keep your distance, but don't lose count. We'll have some catching up to do. Kaiser Permanente, thrive.
12: COVID-19 is more than a health crisis. It's a financial crisis for many California families. In this moment, you shouldn't have to worry about keeping the lights on. That's why at PG&E, we want you to know about our programs to reduce bills for customers facing economic hardship, that we've suspended all disconnections because of non-payment, and we can help you save money by using less energy. To learn more, visit safetyactioncenter.pge.com.
9: Hi, I'm Kathy Adams, president of the Oakland African American Chamber of Commerce. As the impact of COVID-19 grows, OAACC believes it is important that the African-American community hears directly from us in regards to mitigation efforts you may have enacted to reduce the risk to your family and loved ones. Recent data reveals African-Americans are dying from COVID-19 at disproportionate rates than other groups. Experts cite diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and lung disease as factors it is imperative that we institute safeguard measures listed on the OAACC website. We will be conducting virtual forums with African-American experts sharing how we must conduct ourselves during this pandemic. OAACC has taken up the mantle to be caretakers for our community. Visit us at oaacc.org.
10: Where will you go first? Will it be familiar streets? Or perhaps unknown roads? Wherever you may go, Lexus will welcome you back with exceptional offers on exceptional vehicles. Find out all the ways a Lexus can be yours at Lexus.com Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
2: Hi, this is Sean And
4: has no hit the Red
2: Sox. And you're listening to A's Cast, your 24-7 destination for A's baseball. The name, Lorenzo who? That'd be a four-time Pro Bowler, Lorenzo Neal. Uh, who
0: should be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame because he's the greatest blocking fullback in the history of the game. Former colleague of ours, the great Lorenzo Neal. Yeah, when he mentioned and, that, and a super guy.
2: When he mentioned that he was built like Lorenzo Neal, I'm like, well, I already know a guy built like Re- Lorenzo Neal. And that'd be his son, Low Neal, who plays at Purdue. Um, but the same, he's
0: bigger than his dad.
2: Yeah, he. Well, yeah, when I think of Low, like Lowe's built, and Low slimmed down a lot. You know, I worked with him for four, five years in, on the morning show. So Low slimmed down, but his son is like I don't know six. He, I think he's like six foot three something but he tore his oh, ACL yeah,
0: defensive lineman I saw him uh I saw him the bowl game at a uh, Levi Stadium
2: yeah he I think he he tore his ACL so he missed most of the year this year but he's coming I think he's uh he'll be back for his senior year this upcoming season if they play it at Purdue and uh, a lot of people like him I don't know if he's gonna be a first rounder I don't know I don't do mock drafts but I do know that Spencer have done your
0: mock draft yet
2: I know that Spencer Torkelson, the, uh, the guy that's going to be number one, is going to be the next Pete Alonzo. I know that for sure. And the uh, the the I was looking at some of the other guys in the draft, and like Austin Martin from Vandy. Harold Reynolds was talking about him last night on MLB Network. He thinks he's going to get drafted as an infielder, and I think he's going to be the next Justin Turner. Now, Justin Turner, now the guy that has the great swing, the, the uppercut swing he learned from Doug Lotta at the, the the ball yard, and you know Does he's one Austin of Austin
0: Miller have a red beard.
2: Uh, he he does not, but I think he could be the next Turner. Turner learned that new swing with one of those swing coaches, Doug Lada, down in L.A. It's high praise. I think he could be the next Justin Turner. So that's uh, – we'll see. We'll see if it comes true about those two guys, the top two picks in the draft potentially being the next Pete Alonzo and Justin Turner.
0: Do you understand my argument about these guys still being called prospects when they've played in the big leagues?
2: Yeah, I, I, and I understand the, the threshold. Too. They like- should
0: be classified as rookies, not as prospects, as rookies. You, prospects are guys that are unknown, guys you don't know. And I'll give you, guy comes up for one start, goes back down, that's fine. But if you're pitching down the stretch or you're playing down the stretch and you play in a playoff game, you're a rookie. You're not a prospect anymore. Not in my eyes. You can still, you know, however you want to, well, they don't have the service time. Okay, but they're rookies. You're now a rookie. You play in the big leagues down the stretch, and you especially get into a postseason game. You're a rookie. You're not a prospect anymore, in my eyes.
2: Well, that's just some of the things that they that needs to be addressed going forward. We all we all talk about the service time manipulation, how that that needs to be addressed. We've seen it happen with Springer, and we saw it happen with Chris Bryant, and he lost the, the grievance case. And I, I I'm with you to a certain extent. Like I think guys like Lazardo shouldn't be probably because he pitched in a lot of games, puck too, because he pitched in games And Lazardo did pitch in the postseason. Sean Murphy, though, he didn't play as much, so maybe I'm more lenient with him. But the rest of the guys on the list, like Dalton Jeffries and, and uh, Austin Allen are um, the shortstop that you, you know really well. Uh, Allen, what's his first I'm blanking on his first name.
0: Nick Allen. Nick
2: Allen. Like, guys like that that haven't made a debut. yes, 100% percent their prospects because they haven't, made, haven't been in a major league game. But how many games, like, Sean Murphy, I mean, I, I'll i look it up, so many games he played in. But, I mean. Well,
0: like, like look at it. So, it says highest level. So, this is, according to Fangraphs highest level. Jesus Lozardo, MLB. A.J. Puck, MLB. Sean Murphy, MLB. Robert Poisson, this superstar switch-hitting shortstop. Who's 17 years old? Rookie ball, Logan Davison, A ball, Dalton Jeffries, double A, Nick Allen, uh, and the Cal League. I mean, just those guys to me are prospects. When you got MLB next to your name, you're a rookie, and rookies shouldn't be prospects. What? I don't have to really deal with this that much. It doesn't matter to me. They're all suspects. Until they do it in the big leagues.
2: Well, I, I looked up Sean Murphy. He his. If you look at the service time on Baseball Reference, it's zero point zero two nine, which means he played. He only had fifty three at bats last year for the A's. Now he did hit four home runs, driving four, and drove in eight runs. He had an OPS plus of one thirty seven. The guy's on a Hall of Fame track, man. I don't, he's
0: twenty five years old. He's not a prospect. He played in the big leagues. He's not a prize. He's a rookie. That's what he is. He's not a but once 20, again, twenty games you he could, played in.
2: Huh? He was in. He played in twenty games last year for the A's. How
0: about how about what he said? Once some of these guys graduate, the A's are going to have a uh, not so stock system.
2: Yeah, I was. I was. Uh, sh- that was shocking because there are some teams that, from what I've read before, that have bad farm systems. Because you, you, the Angels, for a long time had a bad one. They're starting to build it up now with Joe Adele and some other guys. But uh, I don't ever think as the A's as a team with a, a bottom tier farm system. It's always been pretty consistent.
0: Well. You know, I I give credit to the Angels. They're always going for it. You know, that's, I mean, you got, I mean, I don't, I don't follow their drafts, but I know, you know, over the years, Artie Marino wants to win. And when you want to win, sometimes the, the, the cupboard's going to be bare because you're using those guys as trade bait. So I don't, you know, what do I care what's happening in Stockton? I only care what the big club's doing. It's not my job to worry about the minor leagues. I want to win.
2: Like MLB.com, here's the 25 through 30. Here's the, uh, the Farm Systems rank. Red Sox, 25. Angels, 26. Rockies, 27. Astros, 28. Nationals, 29. Brewers, 30th. Uh, pretty much all those teams are trying to contend for a playoff spot besides the Rockies. Um, so... You know the the Astros are. You know they have a couple guys in their system like Forrest Whitley, who's probably going to make his debut this year if he stays healthy and we have a season and all that. But you know, like the Brewers, that was always the biggest thing is they don't. They never. But a lot of their their prospects were either not great or they graduated and they moved up to playing Major League Baseball.
0: Like Kesson Hira, who's their second baseman. Just to give everybody an idea of what we're doing this week, it's draft week here on Ace Cast Live. So of course we're doing the show today on Wednesday. You're going to be watching MLB Network, and it, at six thirty, right around there, is when the pick is going to happen. We're going to come on live at six thirty and talk about the pick. Then we're gonna we're not going to do the show Wednesday, not one to four. We're moving it to Thursday and Friday from one to four. So Thursday and Friday, A's cast live from one to four. Th- Thursday, but on draft night at six thirty, we'll be coming on.
2: Thursday's going to be two to five, actually, not one to four. Two to five on Thursday.
0: Oh, it's 2 to 5.
2: Yeah, 2 to 5 Thursday, 1 to 4 on Friday. Normal show Friday, 2 to 5 on Thursday, no show Wednesday until we come on for a little bit. On, after the pick is in, it's 6 30 on Wednesday. Because
0: that's. Uh, so are there, they're only doing the first round on Wednesday night, and then they're doing 2 through 5 on Thursday?
2: Yeah, 2 through 5. And I was looking at ESPN's press release on it, and they have um, their draft coverage, which I'm assuming MLB Network's going to be the same. ESPNs is from uh, 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. on Thursday. So rounds 2 through 5 will be 2 to 8 p.m. on Thursday. But on on Wednesday, it's going to be 4 to 7.30 for the first round.
0: Love it. Let's talk a little draft. Earlier today, I caught up with executive editor of Baseball America, J.J. Cooper, to break down this year's MLB draft. J.J., thanks so much for taking the time.
15: Happy to join you guys.
0: So we're, it's draft time in, in baseball, and it's really uh, all we got going in baseball. This might be the one draft people watch more and pay more attention to than ever before.
15: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think, but I remember back when the NFL draft was kind of celebrating its, I think, 10th, 12th, 15th year on ESPN – MLB still held a secret draft where they didn't announce what rounds the players were taken in. You know, Baseball America, we had to basically uh, ferret that information out and send it out to people. You know, obviously, thankfully, MLB has kind of moved on from those days. This year, we're going to have it. We're going to be Carlos Colazo. For us, will be on the uh, MLB Network broadcast. And the ESPN is also doing its own draft broadcast. The first ever uh, two uh, broad, you know, two different broadcasters for an MLB draft. And yeah, it is the only thing we've got right now, baseball-wise. And it's a great—if that's going to be the case. The good news is, is it's a great draft class. This is a really deep draft class, especially when it comes to college pick, pitching. And this is the first time that they're ever going to have, uh, you know, rounds two to five on a on a TV broadcast, not just an online-only broadcast. And it's a good year to do that because there's a lot of guys in those rounds who are guys who, would, in a normal round, may slip into the supplemental first round. Because there's that much college talent.
0: Are are there some high school guys that are kind of looking around at the landscape, and they're saying, "You know what? I'd rather go to college, start my degree, and in three years things could be a lot different. Hopefully, more back to to normal than where we are in in today's
15: world." I, I think it really depends on where are you potentially going. We've had guys who were potential picks, you know, which we have noticed, we have this happen most years, but a guy like Dylan Cruz, who, you know, could have could have been in the, uh, you know, second round, third round range. He's already said he took his name out of the draft. You know, he's going to, uh, to LSU. We've had a number of guys do that this year. The thing I'll say is, is if you're a first round pick, you, you probably aren't doing that because you're yeah, some of your money, your bonuses will be deferred, but if you are going to have the opportunity to make $3 million, even $2 million in this draft class, the risk of injury, the risk of poor performance, the risk of going to college and two, three years from now, not being considered as much of a prospect as you are right now is a reason to take the money now. It's a very different story if you are a fourth or fifth round pick. Obviously, if you're a sixth and Round pick or later, it's a very different story because it's only going to be a five-round draft this year, not 40 rounds. But even if you're a fifth-round pick, a fourth-round pick, there's we expect there to be a lot of players in those rounds who are offered below slot, below the slot amount, the allotment that you're allowed to spend for those picks. And with that being the case, I would expect those rounds potentially to be very college-heavy because if you're a high school kid, yes, those are the cases where it may make a lot of sense to go to college see if you can raise your stock and work on your degree, you know, at, at the same time.
0: You know, most of the mock drafts I've looked at, and I love mock drafts. because It's so funny how they change. And, you know, I used to do a show with Rick Buker and he did his mock draft all those years for ESPN. And he said your first mock draft is never going to be what your last mock draft is. It's going to change. Uh, but I see mostly top 10 picks first round. It's usually eight or nine are college guys.
15: Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like that was, you know, the conversation that's having today, like we feel like. Those top ten picks, you know, there could be a little bit of variation, but there's a a pretty significant consensus uh, on the top, especially the top college guys in this class. The other thing that you have to throw into this is, is that on the high school class, you already have a shorter history with these players in a normal year. Well, obviously this year. With a season that, in some cases, stopped just as it was getting rolling, in some other cases, stopped a month into the season. If you're in Texas or Florida or California, and in some cases, like the case of Nick Abel, who's you know potentially a, a top 10 pick, he's up in Portland. He never got on the mound officially this you know this spring. Ed Howard, shortstop from Illinois, he didn't never got on you know got on the got an official. These guys were basically just getting started at the time the season shut down that adds to a little further uncertainty for some of these high school players, because you didn't get to see them perform during their senior year, which is something that usually makes a very big difference as far as where you uh, take these guys.
0: Yeah. I, I I feel so bad for those guys because I think about myself, I I played college baseball and, and what I was like as a junior to then what I was like as a senior. I mean, it's, there's a, there's a big difference. And, you know, a lot of these first round guys, who are coming out of high school, already very mature. So they were scouted as juniors and people knew, but then there's these guys who blossom. Let's say, you know, you're a junior throwing 88 miles an hour, and then you grow a couple inches, gain a few pounds. You're now throwing 93, 94. You don't get that opportunity. It's sad.
15: Every year. And I mean, every year, I feel like there's a pitcher who comes out of Texas, who there's a high school pitcher out of Texas who, came into the, you know, his senior year, considered, you know, a guy, no, normally people know who he is, but it's something where it's like, yeah, he's probably a guy who's going to go to college. And then he gains that strength you just talked about. He's four or five, six miles an hour, throwing harder than he was before. And a lot of times that guy ends up being a first round pick. It was Grayson Rodriguez one year, Kyle, Kyle Muller. There's been a number of these guys and this year, Those guys never got the chance to do that. There were guys who are very interesting pitchers who, you know, I know of a guy who I'm almost assuredly not going to get drafted, but he played basketball. Well, basketball season was just wrapping up, so he was just getting on the mound when everything shut down. He never got a chance to show that he kind of taken that step forward. Now, again, I I feel for those guys, to be honest, less than I even feel for, as rough as it is for them, these guys are guys who are going to get to go to college. They're going to get to show what they can do, you know obviously the the even rougher is, is and this is just unfortunately the the class of 2020. there also were you know literally thousands of kids all around the country who aren't going to get drafted who don't have college who may in some cases have earned college scholarships with a solid senior season, but they never got to show it and and their baseball careers are probably over because
0: yeah that is that is sad. and get getting to the players, uh, this Spencer Tolkelson. Uh, first baseman for Arizona State. I see a lot of people see him going first, kind of like the safe pick. Mm-hmm. Got a lot of power. Is that how you see it? The first baseman for from A
15: State? Yeah. Which, by the way, a first baseman going one, a college first baseman going one one overall is a pretty uh, surprising development in normal, you know, normal times. But uh, this has been kind of a guy I, we wrote about him being the likely one one pick uh, about eighteen months ago. You know, he is the most productive college power hitter since since chris bryant i think that's the guy you could go back to and say well that was similar similar type production a long track record what the the season ending like it did early kept him from baking the arizona state home run career home run record which you know he was assuredly barring injury going to reach um he's just there's hitting ability with power, which is obviously a, uh, a a nice combo to have. You know, that's something you, you, you want. He's more athletic. He's a first baseman, but he's not like a stiff. There's some athleticism there too. You know, you hear now a lot of like, "Ah, hey, maybe he's another Pete Alonso. But one thing I'll note, Pete Alonso hit 23 homers in his three years at Florida. Spencer Torkelson has hit that in a year, every year for his, you know, not counting this year. That's, that's a normal year for Spencer Torkelson. Doesn't mean he's going to be, you know, a better hitter long-term than Peter Pete Alonso, but coming out of college, there's no comparison. This guy is a better prospect than Pete Alonzo was at the time. This guy has a better track record than Pete Alonso had at the time. Again, I think you have to go back. It's Chris Bryant. That's the guy. Chris Bryant was hitting 31 homers in a season where some teams were hitting 10. You have to go back to a guy like that to find the guy who has a better track record of power than, than Spencer Colton.
0: That is so fishy for me when you got a guy that – hits some home runs in college and then goes to the big leagues and hits over 50 in his first year. That's just fishy.
15: Well, the thing I'll say for Pete, to his credit, is that he had 14 in his junior year. It really, his power blossomed right, you know, in his draft year, which we see a lot of times. But but more than that, what Pete Alonso has done, and you do see this, power is often the last thing to develop. What Pete Alonso has done is he had weaknesses, and he has worked very hard. He was also a brutal defender. He's still not great, but he's better at it. You you have guys who – and nowadays it's a little easier to do. You get pointed out what your weaknesses are, and then you've got to figure out a way to uh, to improve those. Pete Alonso has done that. Now, again, with Torkelson, a, a guy like Andrew Vaughn, who went very high last year's draft, you do <laughs> – the guys who have this kind of present power in college are the guys who go very high because you're not having to project. You're not projecting Spencer Thornton from to the extra power. You, you're saying, can he continue to do what he's doing with a wood bat in pro ball? And a lot of the, the general consensus is yes. That's why a guy like him could go one, one. Peter Alonzo was not a first round pick for that reason.
0: And then you got a ver- – well, I don't know. Are you going to go – so that's the Tigers. The second pick is going to be the Orioles. God, do you think of how bad the Tigers and the
4: Orioles have been with all those
0: – oh, my God, and the Marlins. But uh, are you going Martin at a, the infielder from Vanderbilt, or are you going the left-hander who seems to be, from what we've seen, pretty special, Lacey out of Texas A&M?
15: I, I, right now, if I had to guess, I'm going to say Austin Martin. Now, I think that this, though, is, is that there's – when you're watching the draft on on Wednesday night, I think that this is one of the two, what I would describe as kind of fulcrum points. Um, if, you know, in our previous mock, we got a new mock coming up, Baseball America's Day. In our previous mock, we put Zach Veen, uh, the best high school bat in the class, at this point, at this spot, at two also, because there is a lot of rumbling that maybe the Orioles will cut a deal with someone at two. I've also, heard Nick Gonzalez is the guy who could fit here. Uh, the reason being, still taking a top five, top six talent, but the idea being save some money here. They have two picks. They have a supplemental first round pick and a second round pick as well. They might be able to get another top guy, another first round talent with, the, with that pick having saved some money. This is something that will be very useful to watch because if they don't go Martin, especially if they don't go Martin or Lacey, they're probably cutting a deal here and by doing so, it also, it affects, you know, what happens from, from three to like eight in this you know, round, but it also affects what's going to happen in the uh, supplemental first and the second round. The other fulcrum point to me is when we get to around to about pick 10 or 11, there's a kind of a clear delineation of this top group. After that, are we going to see high school bats go off the board 11 to 15? Are we going to see high school arms? Are we going to see the next wave of college arms, the next wave of college bats? There's a lot of ways it could go in that range, which is going to affect kind of how the rest of the first round goes.
0: I, you know what? I, whenever I hear that, it, it drives me nuts. Oh, we're going to cut a deal, and we're going to you know, we're going to draft Matt Bush first because we can cut a deal and save some money. And it's like, wait a minute, that's so you're trying to draft a guy that is going to get to the big leagues and make you a lot of money as a business. And well, you're going to cut some money now and not take the best player when you can have a player that maybe becomes a Hall of Fame player? A Hall of Fame player will make an organization so much money. I don't. To me, that just seems
7: short-sighted.
15: But that, that's not what I'm talking about here. They're going to spend the same amount of money in the draft. They're not trying to save money as far as saving spending. Look at what the Astros did in 2012 with Mike Elias, who's now the, the GM for the Orioles, who was there. They thought that Carlos Correa was – a similar talent to a Byron Buxton, who was, you know, or, you know, or a Marcupel, the guys who were at the top of, uh, of that class. And so they basically decided, since we think Carlos Correa is every bit or right at the same range as Byron Buxton, we'll pay Correa less and use the slot allotment. Because again, you only have so much money you're allowed to spend now in the draft. They yeah. use that, they said, okay, we circle back. And then they drafted Lance McCullers Jr who basically they paid like a first rounder. They also did a guy like Rio Ruiz who hadn't as good. But so they looked at it and said, we're getting two first rounders instead of one by doing this. They did this a few years later where they went Alex Bregman, Kyle Tucker, and Daz Cameron with, again, when Mike Elias was there at the Astros. The idea is not to save money as in put money in the owner's pocket. The idea is if you think that Nick Gonzalez is every bit as good or 99% as good as Austin Martin and you can get Nick Gonzalez for a million less on the deal, then that gives you a million more. And maybe in the second or the supplemental first, then you can sign the top high school pitching arm who fell because of his asking price. And so you're trying to maximize the talent. I, I should make it clear. It's not that you're trying to save money as far as saving, you know, like pocketing savings It's trying to reapportion your, your slot allotment.
0: Yeah, I get it. You're trying to, you're trying to get as many good players as you can. It's just you—you—you you, you, you can find success stories. I mean, I don't follow the draft as much like I do the NFL draft, but I bet we can find someone where where you did that strategy and he came up with three guys who never made it to the big leagues.
15: Um, again, I'm struggling to because the ones I think of that, that that happened at the top, you know, the the you know, if you wanted to go the other way, that the argument of the best one would probably be Chris Bryant. Chris Bryant ended up signing for the most in that class, uh, you know, with the Cubs. And uh, again, you could argue that he was the top player in that draft class. You could argue that he wasn't. He signed for the largest bonus, and he didn't go 1-1, and and he was easily better than than, uh, Marco Pella or Jonathan Gray, the two guys who did. You know, so you can make an argument that way. But again, I think the key part is – I. I would be surprised to see if the Orioles believe that Austin Martin is clearly the best guy on the board other than Spencer Ferguson, they're probably not gonna cut that deal. When you see that happen in the baseball draft, I would say more than anything, it's when you have a couple of guys very close together on the board, and then you start basically seeing, okay, which one will cut a deal with us? And you know, again, I'm not saying it's definitely gonna happen. I'm saying it's a possibility and if it does, it's because they're going to take a guy that they consider is right in that same range, not one who's, you know, we're not going to, they're not going to take the 10th best guy in their board to save some money.
0: You mentioned Zach Veen. He's a big kid. And I, I, I kind of see him all over the board. You know, some people got him at four going to the Royals, some people have him going seven or eight. Uh six, five, 200 pounds. He's a good size outfielder.
15: Yeah, and I think that I think the floor for him, he's going to be a top 10 pick, no matter what, I I think that's that's pretty safe. And probably a top seven pick would be my guess. Now where he slots into that is going to be really interesting to see, as most of these guys are. Um, But no, there's there's power, I think there's steel to hit there as well. he's a guy who, when we were talking before the 2020 season began, he was like a, a back of the first round type talent. And he really benefited. We talk about which players have hurt and which players benefited. He was playing in Florida. Everyone got to see him. Everyone got to see him perform this spring a good bit before the uh, the season was shut down. So when we compare, say, him to like an Austin Hendrick, who's also one of the best out, high school outfielders in the class, well, everyone saw Veen this spring, and basically no one saw Hendrick because he plays in Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania Hadn't really gotten going, but, you know, it's too cold up there before uh, the March shutdown happened. So he's Dean is one of the players to need more than anyone who benefited from the early shutdown. No one benefits a little strong, but he got to play before then, and that really helped him out because everyone got a chance to feel very comfortable about where he is heading into the 2020 draft.
0: I know this is really, really tough, I, and it's kind of like a who knows. When you get to the bottom of the draft, where our A's are picking twenty sixth, you have no clue who's. I mean, you might have some clue, but you don't know who's going to be there. But who are you projecting for the A's at pick number twenty six?
15: You are absolutely right that when you get to twenty six, it's you know it's really hard. By the way, I go back to our first mock, which was a way long time ago. I think it was at about this time last year but we had Zach Veen going to them. He's not going to be there. Um, I, I would say we're looking, we've generally kind of mocked bats to the A's at this spot. Um, a, a couple of names I'll throw out there to watch. Uh, Aaron Savato, first baseman, you know, who's a, a big power college power hitter. I don't know if he's going to still be on the board at that point. I think he may have some helium, but that, that's a name to watch. Ed Howard, the, the high school shortstop from Illinois, who never really got a chance to, show what he could do this spring, but everyone had a lot of track record with him, you know, before this season. Uh, Nick Lofton, who's probably the best, uh, you could make the argument, is the best college shortstop in this class. It's not a great year of, of college shortstops. Those, those are three you Austin Wells, who maybe they're not, not, as a catcher, but really more of a bat, who, who also, there are questions about whether he can catch. And the other thing I would say is, is that I could go through a number, like a number of guys for this, there are going to be a lot of still very useful, very interesting college arms. Last year was a truly horrid collection of college pitching talent, especially in the first round. There will be guys on the board when the A's pick who last year would have been You would have looked at it and said, there's no way this guy's still going to be on the board when they pick this year, there'll be, there'll be college arms who are still there because being the 10th best arm or the eighth best college arm in this class, would make you better than being the fifth-best arm or the fourth-best college arm in last year's class.
0: Well, uh, J.J., thank you so much for taking the time. This is going to be some great information, and this is going to be by far the most watched because normally we're playing a game during the draft, right? And then all of a sudden uh, the they bring out our first-rounder and you get to meet him. but, you know, we have no game. So this is going to be the most-watched draft in baseball history. We'll be following you. Thank you for the time and enjoy. No problem. Cody, uh, in your mock draft, who do you have the A's taking at 26? Uh, well, you know, I've, I've done it a few times. And,
2: you know, after after having Eric on, I, I like Nick Lofton, the kid, the kid from Baylor, but I think he's going to go a little earlier. So I, I'm going to go with the – it's tough because there's two guys. There's a right-handed pitcher that they can take there out of college or they can take the shortstop out of Mississippi State. Hopefully he's still there. Uh, the A's love taking shortstops. We went over this. We talked about it. You and I talked about it yesterday, how many shortstops have gone by the A's in the last couple of years. I'm going to go with the shortstop for Mississippi State. His name escapes me. I closed my mock draft out and the mock draft I was looking at. Uh, but I really
0: I, I could all right, just stop. Just stop. Yeah. Coming up, we have two legends. Oakland A's legend, Mike Norris, and then one of the greatest players of all time a guy who won seven batting titles, an MVP, a Rookie of the Year, Hall of Famer Rod Carew. That's all coming your way right here on A's Cast Live.
10: Where will you go first? Will it be familiar streets? Or perhaps unknown roads? Wherever you may go, Lexus will welcome you back with exceptional offers on exceptional vehicles. Find out all the ways a Lexus can be yours at Lexus.com. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
11: Here's what we want everyone to do. Count all the hugs you haven't given, all the hands you haven't held, all the dinners you didn't share with friends, the trips you haven't taken, keep track of them. Each one means one less person vulnerable One less person exposed and one step closer to a healthier community. So for now, keep your distance, but don't lose count. We'll have some catching up to do. Kaiser Permanente. Thrive.
7: Chevron and its brands are committed to reliably providing fuel to customers, even during an emergency. The safety and health of workers, customers, and the communities where Chevron operates are primary concerns. In Northern California, Chevron and Texaco stations are open for business, supplying quality fuels in a safe manner.
12: COVID-19 is more than a health crisis. It's a financial crisis for many California families. In this moment, you shouldn't have to worry about keeping the lights on. That's why at PG&E, we want you to know about our programs to reduce bills for customers facing economic hardship, that we've suspended all disconnections because of non-payment, and we can help you save money by using less energy. To learn more, visit safetyactioncenter.pge.com.
13: Right now, staying connected is more important than ever, and fast, reliable internet from Xfinity can help. We have plans to fit every budget, with speeds up to a gig, all at Xfinity.com. We'll ship you a self-install kit, on us, to make setup quick, safe, and easy. No tech visit required. And our simple digital tools will help you manage your account online. At Xfinity, we're committed to keeping you connected. Find great offers and value today at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.
9: Hi, I'm Kathy Adams, President of the Oakland African American Chamber of Commerce. As the impact of COVID-19 grows, OAACC believes it is important that the African American community hears directly from us in regards to mitigation efforts you may enact enacted to reduce the risk to your family and loved ones. Recent data reveals African Americans are dying from COVID-19 at disproportionate rates than other groups. Experts cite diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and lung disease as factors. It is imperative that we institute safeguard measures listed on the OAACC website. We will be conducting virtual forums with African-American experts sharing how we must conduct ourselves during this pandemic. OAACC has taken up the mantle to be caretakers for our community. Visit us at OAACC.org.
7: Hi, this is Ramon Laureano.
9: And the throw is going to be
14: in time at the plate. Laureano firing a strike all the way on the line.
0: And you're listening to Ace Cast, your 24-7 destination for Ace Baseball. Uh, Baseball America just tweeted out one minute ago, a highlight of Aaron Sabato, right-handed hitter. He looks like he's got some big time power. I don't think he's going to be there at 26 for the Oakland A's.
2: The player i was thinking of is Jordan Westberg. That's the shortstop from uh, Mississippi State. Bobby Miller, the right-handed flamethrower from Louisville, is the other guy. That you the need to,
0: you need to get your act together. The draft's in two days. The,
2: uh, there are so many players I've been scouting that I've lost track of the guys, and you know, there's a guy from my neck of the woods in Western Pennsylvania. I hope he gets drafted high. He's a project. He's supposed to go high, but no baseball being played was played in uh, Western PA this year because of the pandemic, and, well, the weather sucks uh, in February and March, so hard to play baseball then. Pretty much the weather sucks
0: year-round. Uh, no, summer's not bad. It's just really humid. Um, yeah, cold. it sucks. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't live in that. All righty. He finished second in the Cy Young Award. He's a former All-Star, and when this guy took the ball, he completed the game. We got a chance to hook up with Mike Norris, former Oakland Athletic. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time. It's great to hear your voice.
14: Thank you, man. I'm glad to be a part of your podcast. Appreciate you inviting me.
0: Well, I think about your great career as an all-star and a two-time Gold Glove winner and, uh, you know, second in the Cy Young Award. I mean, when we've been looking back at different periods of A's baseball, and one of the great pictures is when all of you guys were on Sports Illustrated, the five aces, that was a great time in A's baseball.
14: And it, it truly was. And, uh, you know, I, I'd just like to give a shout-out to, God bless, he's not here any longer, but Billy Martin had a great, great, great part in that. You
0: know, they talk about how many, you know, when, when I'm looking at your guys' stats and... You know, you're looking at, you had 24 complete games in 1980. You had three, 33 starts, but you completed 24. You were 22 and nine with a 2.53 ERA. We just talked to McCaddy. When you guys took the ball, y- you weren't looking for the bullpen. You were looking to go all nine.
14: Well, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's not a, a, a knock on the bullpen. But I mean as kids or in the minor leagues, that's what you did. You went completed games. The, the relief pitcher wasn't really something that was was looked at, looked upon like it is today. Uh, Fortunately, when I made it to the big leagues, we had Raleigh Fingers and we did have a great bullpen, and Paul Lynn Blatt. But you were actually when you took the ball, you expected to go nine innings.
0: You know the, the only problem for you is you showed up one year too late. Uh, you showed up in 1975. It would have been great if you could have showed up in 74
14: and got that ring. I, I often wonder why was that. Ah, the good Lord blessed me, but I sure wish you would let me get in a little earlier. I tell you, that would have been great to have a World Series ring to add to my uh, my trophies and glow gloves and things of that nature. And you, wore, and you had the green glove, right? Isn't that correct? Yeah, I was kind of a bit, I guess what they call a hot dog. I guess I was a hot dog in those days. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, that's a great thing about A's history when, we, you know, we talked to Ray Fossey and we, talk, we had Reggie Jackson on and, you know, a lot of the great players from the 70s and Charlie Finley's paying him to have long hair and mustaches and you've got the green glove and Vita Blue. It's just it, it, the, the organization in the 70s and the 80s was just so colorful.
14: Well, you know, and that was a tribute to Charlie Finley. You know, he allowed that. And even, you know, he paid them, uh, which wasn't much, but he paid them, each of them $100 just to grow mustaches and stuff. So, you know, where other teams had the uniformity of having clean-shaven faces and you had to wear your socks a certain way and things of that nature. So we had none of that. So it was great. And he just let your personalities be what they were. You know, we had
0: Steve McCaddy on re- recently, and we asked him this question. is some people wonder, you guys pitching all those complete games and throw and having so many pitches and so many starts, did that affect you long term? He said no, that injuries, they were random injuries that, that, that your five got that led to some careers being short. Is that true?
14: Well, he might have a point, but I have a different opinion, and it's all opinionative, so the facts on it we'll, we'll probably never know. But what I attribute it to is, uh, I think that was in 1981, uh, Billy invited an immense amount of minor leaguers into camp, okay, so they could learn the system. And what happened was we left spring training with 11 innings. I think I had 11 or 14 innings and stuff, which was definitely not enough innings to be prepared to start the season. I think that might have been 1982, if, I, if I'm correct. But that led to, you know, to me, that led to, uh, and then, you know, you're still going out trying to complete all the games, and so not being in shape, and then you already had the bulk of 1980 and 81. So I think that's what happened to me.
0: That would make sense because usually you want to be throwing, I mean, even even in today's baseball where these guys are not completing games, by the end of spring training, they want to be able to go at least about six innings and you're saying you only had 11 the entire spring that sounds very dangerous to me
14: yeah it was it really was so that's what I attribute my arm trouble to so then, then maybe
0: there is something to it then because that's um because you were you I mean you're talking about 82 83 you you're entering your prime at 27 28 years old
14: exactly you know and and so you know uh we actually had a pitch count. Uh, and so uh, I think, uh, let me see, uh, myself, Langford, and Keo averaged under 125 pitches for nine innings. Uh, and so I think that didn't have, you know, the, the complete games now, what could have happened was we did throw, I think all of us threw, uh, most of us threw a 14-inning game. I know I had four extra inning games, a 10-inning game, 11-inning game, a 12-inning game, and a 14-inning game. So that could have constituted two or two. So like I said, we'll never actually be able to pinpoint exactly what happened.
0: Yeah, and obviously modern medicine is better. The treatment that you guys would have had would have been better if you were pitching today. But I can't imagine what it would be like in baseball today What that conversation with the manager and the meeting after the game, if a manager left a starting pitcher in there for 14 innings, can you imagine
14: what would happen to a manager if he did that in today's baseball? Probably be fired right after the game, most likely. (laughs) But I think we started something that, that ended abruptly because, you know, with the, with the immense salaries these days, you know, uh, you can't just have your starting pitcher go down like that and then pretty much, you know, be out for the season or wind up with surgery. And then, you know, usually after surgery, you're really never the same. So uh, the day of the bullpen, I think we brought that in, you know, and uh, I think that's what we can attribute to baseball today.
0: You know, you can really make the case looking at your numbers. I know you finished second in the Cy Young Award, which is a great achievement. But you're a year at 22 and 9 with a 2.53 ERA, 33 starts, 24 complete games. You threw 284 and a third innings. I mean, you could really make the case that you, you should have been the Cy Young Award winner.
14: Well, I was just about to say that. So thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. Uh, so I wouldn't have to sound so egotistical. But at the same time, yeah, I had beat, Steve Stone did win the Cy Young Award that year, and I beat him in every other category, every category but wins. And of course, the Baltimore Orioles won the World Series that year, so that that helped him out a lot as well. So, uh, so winning percentage and wins is what he beat me with, and I think he wound up with I think he was 25 and seven or something like that. Um, so, you know, I mean. What can I say? The thing that hurt me most was three riders left me off the ballot totally. And I lost by three votes. So if I'd have gotten a third place vote which was equal to one point, or the second place votes or the first the second place votes was two points, then the first place vote was worth three points. So had any of them voted correctly, I would have won the Cyam. So oh. it, it so that was and then what was ironical about that was the riders were from Kansas City, Detroit, and Anaheim. And I think I was like 3 and 1 against Anaheim, maybe 3 and 0. Oh. And uh, Kansas City, I was 4 and 1, and Detroit I pitched a one to nothing shutout against them. So I don't know what that rider was looking at that night, but anyway, that's where it went.
0: The fact that you were left off those ballots is an absolute travesty. When you look at these numbers, how someone couldn't even vote you third place is a joke.
14: It's a joke. It really was. So they made a mockery out of the whole thing. And it just, you know, I was wondering who, who, who? how did they even be able to keep their jobs after that? Because that was just, that was a catastrophe as far as my life is concerned. That would have changed my whole life if I had won that Cy Young award, without a doubt.
0: Well, we'll always remember what a great year that was in 1980. And, of course, you have your, your baseball school in Northern California. Tell us about your baseball school and how we can help grow it.
14: Well, uh, you know, uh, I'm a part of the Black Aces. Okay, and the Black Aces are uh, 15 black African-American pitchers who won 20 games or more in a season. And it's an illustrious group, uh, Ferguson Jenkins, Bob Gibson, Don Newcomb, Doc Good and people like that. And so after I retired and then I started looking around and and the precipitous drop of of African-Americans in the game was alarming to me. And then I thought to myself, wow, will there ever be another 20-game, black 20-game winner again? And this led me to start having the baseball um, academy. Now, it took more than that because what I also found out that, over 90% of African-American players, uh, after two years of being out of the game, you wind up broke. And I was one of those people due to an IRS problem. I had an agent that wasn't paying my taxes, and he put all my money in insurance policies that he was because he was an insurance man. And so the investments that he made were just tax right off. So it was pretty bad. But anyway, so what I wanted to have was a financial literacy course. And then I wanted to have an academia, that uh, after school program where the kids could have a study hall. And then it led to me, right now I have a domestic violence program, teenage domestic violence. I have a mental health program. I have uh, financial literacy, uh, social emotional, which deals with uh, drugs and alcohol, and and it's partially a religion course. and uh, I have a black history course so these kids can learn their heritage and have some pride in themselves and understand where we came from, which right now is going on right now. So it's a big purpose because of what's going on with this pandemic racism that we have what's going on recently in the world right now. And so it's a, a health and wellness thing. And so it's very complete uh, program. And so and it's free. Uh, and so uh, I have some online classes as well. And uh, so it's just a, it's a pretty pretty thorough wraparound program. How can we help you grow this? Well, uh, I have a travel ball team that I'm trying to get off the ground. And again, it's about the funding. And it's in 11 cities. So we started in San Francisco, which is where I'm born and reared from. I came out of the Western Edition, which used to be called the Fillmore. Uh, and, uh, we come over to Oakland and then we have Berkeley. We have, uh, Richmond, San Pablo, Vallejo, Fairfield, Pittsburgh, Antioch, and Marin County. And so, you know, that's, 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 uh, most of the league is basically about 80% black. And, and so this is what I'm trying to do to get black kids to play baseball again. But at the same time, The college education is even more relevant because let's face it, maybe 2% of them will will ever get drafted and and go on to play professional baseball. But we can get many more into college. And and so this could stop some of the incarceration and the deaths that go on in our community the drugs and the alcohol and all the other dysfunctional aspects of life that they partake in. And if you don't catch these kids by 12 years old, then they're ready for the streets. The streets get them. And so having a formal education. Will teach them that there's something better in the world to strive for.
0: Everybody always needs help, and they always need funding. How can people get a hold of you so they can help you grow this?
14: Well, right now I'm working on a brand new website. I'm, I've gotten rid of the, uh, the other one, and because of the additional things that I have in the program, but uh, uh, my email is mike north fifty six at gmail.com, and my website should be up in the next two weeks, and I'm going to keep the same one, which was pitch to success.
5: Well,
0: when you get that up, you contact us, and, and we'll start promoting it for you because what you're doing is great work in the community, and our community needs more people like you.
14: Well, you know, I've been blessed. You know, God is so good. You know, I went through the drug and alcohol aspect myself that partially went to an ending of my career. And so I've cleaned myself up in the last 20 years, 21 years. I've been free of drugs and alcohol. And so it's it's this time now that I give back to the community and be able to educate and not make the mistakes that I made
0: mike thank you so much for the time be safe be well and uh we'll have you on again once you get that website up and we'll help we'll help you promote and fundraise
14: thank you so much guys i really appreciate that and i enjoyed the interview you guys asked great questions today thank you
0: you know we need to uh, we have a lot of missions here on a's cast live and commander i think uh as of today we should do everything we can to help him for what he's doing for children in the Bay Area.
2: I agree 100%. He's doing a, a great thing to help kids with after-school programs and get kids more invested in baseball because we've seen just the youth numbers in baseball overall. It doesn't matter if you're white, Hispanic, African-American, every community, baseball has just dropped in, in communities. And, and Mike's trying to do a great job in growing the game in Northern California. So
0: I commend him for that, and I would love to help as much as we can. Two, two things he said there. If you, don't, if you don't get to these kids by the time they're 12, the streets get them. That was one. Number two is, and I don't know how factual this is, but I think it's probably really close. The percentage of people who get drafted actually make it to the big leagues. You know, the reality is, the reason why they have all these rounds, somebody's got to play with Ken Griffey Jr., somebody's got to play with Alex Rodriguez. I mean, you project the top picks are the guys that are going to the big leagues. And when you're drafting a guy in the 36th round, you don't think he's going to the big leagues, but you got to fill out your minor league system. Because guys are going. Guys guys you've realized, you know what they are. They're not getting past double A. You release them, and you bring in somebody new. But somebody's got to fill up Stockton. Somebody's got to fill up Vegas. You know, you got to have guys to play. Because ideally, you need them to play with the guys who you think will be Matt Chapman. Somebody's got to be on the team for him to get better. So there's games. So that's why you look at it and you say, you know, majority of these guys. That was my whole point earlier with, with, with our draft gurus. See, they always talk about value. So if I got player A and I got player B, but I know I can sign player B for less money, which then allows me to go get this other guy. And they just keep going back to the Astros in in one or two drafts. But i rather have player A because I think player A is a star. You know, where, you know, baseball people are so into value. If it, it, it Compared to football, because football, football makes the Major League Baseball moves look ridiculous, right? If I got Peyton Manning sitting right there, well, I got a guy that's kind of like Peyton. I can sign him for less and then use this money to go get another running back or a defensive end or whatever. So really two players versus one. I don't know. Cody, I think I'd rather have Peyton Manning. I think I'd rather have the guy that's going to be a star. I'd rather have Kim Griffey Jr. than have two guys that I, you know. You know in, in your heart of heart and in that draft room who you think is the best player on the board. And if you don't go with that best player on the board because assignability, signability or you cannot pay the next guy as much and go get another guy, if you don't, it's shame on you if you don't take the best player on your board. I agree, and you
2: never you never know what's going to happen. If you're the Colts in '98 and you don't take Peyton Manning, hey, you take Ryan Leaf, and uh, well, his career panned out to be pretty great. He uh, how many big games did he win? Yeah. So, yeah. and with baseball, I've seen it numerous times. With when I grew up in Pittsburgh, the Pirates would they would go like so. They wanted they drafted Mark Capel, and they knew they could not they wouldn't be able to sign him. They drafted him anyway, and he went, he didn't sign. And they're like, eh, well, we we didn't get him, but uh, we'll get that pick extra pick next year in the draft. It's like that's a, yeah. a terrible logic of how to go through it.
0: Coming up next, the Hall of Famer, Rod Carew, right here on A's Cast Live.
1: Streaming from the town, A's Cast Live continues with Chris Townsend.
0: Really looking forward to our next guest. His numbers speak for themselves. I mean, it's incredible. He's one of those players that analytics really shows you how great he is. He had an 81.3 war and only hit 92 home runs. Think about that. His OPS plus was 131. Remember, he only hit 92 home runs. His career OPS, 822. That tells you he did a lot of damage. He stole 353 bases, drove in over 1,000 runs, scored over almost 1,500 runs, a career batting average of 328. He's a hitting machine. Cody, he had 112 triples. That's a lot. I mentioned that earlier, that's a lot of triples. Who, who, who's the leader in triples right now in, in baseball for a career? Let me. I, I, I swear I thought we looked point. this up. Let I me. Mean, let me. I thought we looked this up before. He had four hundred and forty-five doubles. He walked over a thousand times.
2: If this is accurate, um, the answer would be Dexter Fowler with eighty-two, Brett Gardner with sixty-eight, and then D. Gordon and Hunter Pence tied with fifty-four.
0: Rookie of the year, MVP, started in 1967. You know, as we've been talking to these draft guys, you know, truly a lot of the great players, they came up young. Rod Carew came up at 21 years old. I mean, when you really look at the greats, they come up so early. I mean, Al Kaline, you're talking about Mr. Tiger, Al Kaline, came, I mean, he basically went to prom, and the next, you know, he's in the big leagues. I mean, that's just, that, that story to this day is is absolutely mind-blowing. Well, once again, he's one of the great players of all time. He was American <laughs> League MVP. He was American League Rookie of the Year, an, 18, an 18-time eighteen All-Star won the Roberto Clemente Award, a seven-time batting champion. He is in the Twins Hall of Fame. His number's retired there. He's in the Angels Hall of Fame. His number is retired there also. It is an absolute honor to have truly one of the greats, Rod Carew, with us here on A's Cast Live. Rod, I really appreciate you coming on.
16: Thanks so much, Chris, for having me on.
0: Well, you've come out with a new book, One Tough Out, fighting off life's curveballs, what was it like putting this book together and talking about your life?
16: Well, it was easy, Um, tough in some parts, but, uh, you know, I I enjoyed doing the book and uh, Richard Jackson is the one that named the book for me. So, you know, kudos to him.
0: Yeah, you played with so many great players. You mentioned Reggie. uh, You talk about Nolan Ryan, Harmon Killebrew. Uh, You played on some great teams with some great players. That had to be fun to look back at those times and those relationships.
16: Oh, definitely. You know, um, Tony Oliva was uh, the guy that was my mentor. You know, he took me in as a rookie and as his roommate. When there was room, when they had roommates in those days, and we roomed for about eleven years, and um, he taught me a lot. Taught me how to tie my first tie, how to uh, act on the field and off the field. The acting on the field was uh, a little bit tough, but um, he was my orig- original mentor. Kilbrew was too. Uh, two great guys, two great personalities, and Tony is the same guy today as I met my first year uh, in spring training.
0: It had to be pretty scary for you. You're born in, in Panama and to come to the big leagues at such an early age. What was that
7: like?
16: Well, the the key thing, you know, is that I was abused back home by my dad. And the lady that delivered me on the train was in Panama visiting, so she was on the same train that my mom was on, and I guess I decided to come out and see the world uh, a little bit earlier than I was supposed to, and so she uh, delivered me um, because you know they had they had the black section and and the white section, so. The doctor that I ended up with his name, Dr. Rodney Klein, uh, he came back and finished the uh, procedure. And so my my mom gave me his name. And I I must tell you that he took care of me from that day on while I was, you know, living in Panama.
0: You know, I, I think about your illustrious career and the numbers that you put up that truly make you one of the great hitters of all time. And analytics shows us how great, you know, because we just think about home runs. You only hit 92 home runs, but your career analytics, I mean, obviously a lifetime 328, but you were so productive. You're all around game. That's what makes your numbers stick out. Talk about your game and how you were one tough out. There's no question about it.
16: Well, you know, Chris, the, the key thing is that, um, We were taught how to play the game the right way, moving runners over, bunting, hitting, hitting, running. And uh, today they just don't do that. You have more guys striking out than getting base hits. And so I don't really enjoy it as much, but I'm still part of the game. Uh, I just hope that it can revert back to the way we used to play it because I see some things that happen during the course of a ball game that I really don't care for. Um, but, you know, now they're looking for power guys. Um, you know, I could have hit maybe, you know, 20 home runs a year, but I had a gift of using the whole field to hit, and I was successful doing that, so why get away from it? You know, for me to hit home runs, I would have had to try pulling the ball all the time, and um, that's, that wasn't my game. But when I went to the Twins, they said they would like me to get on base, steal a few bases, score some runs, and um, that's what I did throughout my whole career.
0: Your MVP season is phenomenal. You hit 388, You led the league in runs, hits, triples, on-base percentage. You led it in OPS and OPS+. You know, we talk so much, it's, you know, Hitting 400. We haven't seen it since Ted Williams. And there were a couple of years where I think you thought about it when you hit 364, 359 and 388, which is just amazing. What is it like chasing 400?
16: Well, it was it was tough for me because you know I didn't really uh, get along with the print media t- uh, too well. And so you know I, I used to have to get to the ball, ballpark extra early so I could get my work in and then have a breather before I went out for regular BP and uh, getting loosened up and stuff for the game. And when writers wanted to talk to me, once I started, that was it. I wouldn't talk to them until after the game. So, um, and the only way I came out and, and started uh, speaking to writers is because of my youngest daughter, Michelle, who passed away with leukemia in 1995, 96, and I promised her that um, that I would talk to the guys so that we could get more people involved in um, donating marrow so that other kids can make it. And she said, "Daddy, if I don't if I don't make it, that's okay, but help the, all the other kids that that need the help." So uh, now I'm more open with guys talking to them.
0: Well, you have to be so proud because obviously you lost your, your daughter far too young, but the money you have raised, the millions of dollars and, and the people you've helped save, you have to be very, very proud of that.
16: Yes, I am, you know, and uh, she continues to, to make me proud by my continued work with uh, pediatric cancer research, which is uh, children's cancer. And, um, I go out at night now and I go for a drive just by myself. And, you know, I have a conversation with her, you know, I talk to her and I ask her questions and and just little things like that. And if she misses dad or, you know, how she's doing, you know, we just have a regular conversation at least twice a week.
0: Well, and of course you've had a heart transplant and, you got your heart from someone you knew very well. It, it is a very touching story. I know you talk about it in the book, One Tough Out, fighting off life's curveballs. But if you could tell that story, it's a, it's a beautiful story.
16: Well, you know, I, um, I went out one uh, morning to play, to play golf by myself. And uh, I had a, a widowmaker a heart attack. While I was playing, but I'm lucky because I was at the first hole, and if I was on the second, no one would have found me alive. But I was able to back my card up to the clubhouse, which was right there, and went inside and asked the lady if she could please call the paramedics one. And um, so she did, and I think I blacked out. Just when they walked in the door, I blacked out. And so they paddled me and, and brought me back to. life so um, that was the first time and then I think when I was uh, on my way to the hospital it happened again so um, you know uh, I came out of it again but um, you know all I was doing was telling God that I wasn't afraid to die and I'm going to go wherever he wants me to go either with him or staying here and continue doing my uh, charity work so he, he kept me here maybe he thought he had enough good hitters up there that he wasn't ready for me yet but um, you know it's crazy because the young man that that uh, I got his heart and the kidney from um, he was 11 years old and I my son played on the basketball school uh, basketball team at school so I went out to uh, watch him. And I was out just walking around a little bit and this kid comes up to me and he says, you're what girl, aren't you? I says, yeah. He says, well, I want to be an athlete when I grow up. I says, make your studies your first priority. He says, Oh, I'm a good student. He says, but I'm going to be an athlete when I grow up. And that's when I first met him. He was 11 years old. And so, um, uh, 18 years later, here I am looking for a heart. He had signed with uh, with the Jets, then he signed with the uh, with the Ravens, and he was waiting to sign again with, I think was with the Patriots, and he was working out and he had an aneurysm, and his parents lost him. And um, my wife kept, past, kept telling me, you know Conrad, I says, who's Conrad? I don't remember meeting Conrad. You know, she's got a, a brain, like a memory that's just unbelievable. So I, w- I was fortunate that I was wearing a LVAD, a little machine, for about 14 months that kept me alive. And um, so the first chance that I had to get a heart was from this young man. And we, were, we matched up pretty good. And and then I got a heart and I got a kidney from him. And um, come to find out that he only lived about eight miles from, from us. And, uh, you know, I thank him every day, you know, for sustaining me and keeping me alive and giving me a Maserati inside of my body now, you know. But it's it's an amazing story. And what we what I try to do with the book is talk to people and let them know that um, anything can happen, you know, and you're fortunate if you can find someone and uh, to give you more life. And that's what God did for me, you know, he kept me around for a few more years. So I appreciate that fact from from God and also from the uh, Rulon family.
0: Yeah, it's the, these type of stories I think people need to, need to hear during these times. It's just a, a beautiful story, and I, I, I've been told I need to ask you, you know, we don't see people steal home anymore. I mean, that's just something that doesn't happen in baseball, but you have an interesting story. The Hall of Famer, Harmon Killebrew, is at the plate and you steal home. What happened?
16: <laughs> you know, we were playing the California Angels when I was with its twins, and Hoyt Wilhelm was a pitcher, and I figured, you know, maybe if I steal a run early, it will will help us. So I flashed a sign to Kilroo. He was at the plate, and um, he answered me. And, you know, Hoyt Wilhelm was real slow to the plate. And as I'm sliding in, I mean, I beat the ball there, and as I'm sliding in, uh, Harmon started to swing. And then he backed up. he started saying to me, Junior, I'm sorry, I, you know, I'm sorry I answered, I'm sorry. So I said, Charlie, don't worry about it. Charlie was my name for him. And um, next day in the locker room, the guys in the PR office had a, a sign, tombstone sign made up and stuck it in my locker, which, which it read, here lies Rod Carew lying to left my kid over. So. You know, it's kind of funny, but it's true, you know, but uh, I, I was so happy that he didn't swing because that's the first time that we had come close to somebody swinging um, since I started trying to steal home.
0: Yeah, you know, we, we've been watching a lot of uh, yesteryear baseball on the MLB Network, and I just think about the era of when you played. So many great Hall of Famers, looking back at those All-Star games, so many great African-American players, Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, yourself. I mean, there was so Reggie Jackson. What was it like playing in your era?
16: Boy, I tell you, uh, some of the kids today couldn't play in my era, you know, because hitting home runs and flipping the bat and taking their time running around the bases and stuff like that, they would have been drilled or knocked down just to let them know that uh, you're disrespecting the pitcher. Um, and there were guys that didn't like it. Bob Gibson didn't like it. Colfax didn't like it. Drysdale didn't like it. You know, just some of the great pitchers, they, they kept you loose, you know. And today, if you go inside too much or too close, they're going to uh, give the pitcher a warning or give the, the other book a uh, uh doug got a warning also so it's not uh the game isn't played as hard and as tough uh today as it was when i played
0: the book is one tough out fighting off life's curveballs rod i can't tell you what an honor it is to have you on my program as you've had a wonderful career you have you've had a wonderful life be well be safe and good luck and we'll promote this book and i can't i can't wait to read it
16: Thanks, Chris. And I appreciate you guys having me on and uh, trying to help us sell some books and give some people some insight on taking care of of themselves, taking care of their hearts. The smoking, the drinking, a lot of that stuff uh, hurts, you know, and heart disease is the number one killer in this country for both men and women.
0: Thank you, Rod. You take care.
16: Thanks again for Helping us out.
0: The great Rod Carew. I was in Boston years ago. I'm a little kid. Because my dad's family is all from Massachusetts. And my great uncle Warren took us to Fenway Park. He's playing for the Angels. And my great uncle Warren bet me a quarter that Carl Yastrzemski would hit a home run, and he did. I lost. I had to pay. And number two, Rod Carew hit a double, and at that point he was was hitting four hundred. And I remember, because you got to realize, Red Sox fans, annoying but knowledgeable. They know the game. They love the game. They gave him a standing ovation at the time. Rod Carew was an unbelievable – he won seven batting titles. But see, the thing is for me, it's it, it's his analytics. I mean, look at this MVP year. 388 average, scored 100, 128 runs, 239 hits, 38 doubles, 16 triples, 14 home runs, 100 RBIs, 23 stolen bases, on-base percentage of four forty-nine. Slugging 570, that gives him over 1,000 OPS. And his OPS plus commander was 178.
2: That just means that he's better. He's 78 points better than the average baseball player. Um, It's pretty solid. We went over it yesterday when you and I talked. He had an outstanding career, and he did it without hitting home runs. In an era where home runs were pretty popular with Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, a lot of the guys back in, the, in yesteryear, as we like to say, I mean, it was only 50 years ago, but like Reggie and all those guys, they were hitting home runs, and what's not what Rod Carew did. He was a great player. I mean, he played with Harmony Killerbrew, who was a great home run hitter. But Carew was a guy that got on base, and he played good defense. I mean, he, the guy was – he's one of the greatest hitters of all time, you mentioned, it. and you mentioned yesterday to me that he's like the – he was like the – Itro was like the modern-day Rod Carew, and I, I could not agree more because they always said Itro had – a lot of power too, and he never used it. And I'm a huge – I mean, I'm one of the biggest Ichiro fans in the world. And I knew he had the power, but the guy, he didn't care about that. He cared about getting on base and and literally paper-cutting you to death with singles and because that's that's what – he was just a great all-around hitter. And that's what the same way Rod Carew was.
0: Well, the thing about Rod Carew, though, is he was a doubles and triples machine. <laughs> so he was always putting himself in scoring position. And, um, what a wonderful story. I can't, I, you got to get us the book. I can't, I, I can't wait to read it. I think it's going to be, uh, I mean, cause there's a lot of pain in there. You know, he talked about, he's born on a train. His father was abusive. He lost his daughter at 18 years old. He had to have a heart transplant. I mean, it's, I think it, it, it could be a, uh, it could probably be a, a, a tearjerker also at times. All right. Time for buying or selling.
1: or selling so sell. right now with Chris Townsend on A's Cast Live
2: well like we always do let's first promote what's coming up next on Ace Cast now remember, first we're going to be on Wednesday night not Wednesday during the day from 1 to 4 we're going to be on Wednesday night at 6.30 after the A's make their next Hall of Fame selection in the draft uh, I watched the video you sent you told me about on Baseball America of the kid from North Carolina, the kid can swing it I put the eyeballs. Of- I put the eyeballs emoji out on Twitter. If he goes to 26, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna come on the air with you that night and say he's going to the Hall of Fame if that's who they get. But uh, tonight, the 71st win on Sunday, August 16, 2019. Verse, everyone's favorite, the Houston Astros. Now Tanner Roark, remember him? Uh, he's now with the Blue Jays. He went six innings, along two runs. Lou Trevino, my friend, went three scoreless innings to pick up his fourth win of the season and 13 innings. Mark Hanna hit his 18th home run, and Marcus Simeon hit his 20th in the win. Justin Verlander, I don't know how you feel about this, but he went seven innings long, two runs, and struck out 11. He didn't get a decision. He didn't get a win, so it means he wasn't he wasn't good. But that's what happened in the game against the A's and Astros, you'll hear next on ASCAS. So today is the 55th anniversary of the first ever Major League Baseball draft in 1965. The ace took Rick Monday with the first pick. There were three Hall of Famers taken in that draft after him. That'd be the great Johnny Bench, Tom Seaver went in the tenth round, and uh, that really hard-throwing flamethrower from Texas, Nolan Ryan went in the twelfth round. In 19, 19- I mean, he, I mean, he, I mean, the Mets gave up on him. The guy, the guy, could, clearly he couldn't cut it in New York. So in 1966- 1966, by the way,
0: on, on this date in baseball history is the day that. And I I meant to, I teased this. I I didn't pay off my tease. You're paying it off now. You
2: still got it in. Uh,
0: Yeah, this is, uh, on this day, was the first ever draft. And Rick Monday went number one out of Arizona State on this day. Yeah, so a year
2: later, with the second pick in a draft, the Kansas City A's took Reginald Jackson, who ended up hitting 269 career home runs for the Oakland A's. In 1984, with the 10th pick in the draft, the ace took a a first baseman from USC with the name Mark McGuire, and he hit 363 career home runs with the Oakland A's. Now, a recent article on NBC Sports California has Reggie Jackson as the best ace first-round draft pick ever. Now, other names included could be Walt Weiss, Barry Zito, Mark Mulder, Swisherlish, Nick Swisher, uh, Sean Doolittle, Sonny Gray, Matt Olson, and Matt Chapman. Buying or selling Reggie Jackson it's the greatest first-round pick in athletics history.
0: Uh, I think that, I think that's kind of an easy call, isn't it? I'm buying that. Out of all those guys you mentioned, how many are in the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame?
2: Uh, that'd be none. I was looking at it from a McGuire standpoint because he hit more home runs, but he also played a couple more years in Oakland opposed to Reggie, who only played, I think, two less than, than Big Mac. But uh, I agree. I think Reggie Jackson's the greatest. I put McGuire probably second.
0: McGuire—it's a fact. McGuire not in the Hall of Fame is a joke.
2: Well, hey, come up Sunday. We got the uh, Long Gone Summer. McGuire Sosa thirty for thirty oh, on that the ESPN. It's the Sunday coming up. Yeah. Oh,
0: I cannot wait. I, I, I seriously. I've already. I won't be able to. I won't be able to sleep on Saturday night. I'm so looking forward to that.
2: I've already tried getting the uh, the producer or the uh, the filmmaker from Thirty for Thirty. I reached out to try to get him, and oh, uh, yeah. we're efforting McGuire. So hopefully, we can get McGuire going to tell the story of how he saved baseball.
0: No, I, I bet we could go through. And the Pac 12, which was the Pac 10, which was the Pac 6 at one point. But it be the A's have had a lot of great Pac 12 players. Reggie at Arizona State, Big Mac at a USC. They've had a lot. Barry Zito at a USC. They've had a lot of good Pac 12 guys.
2: Yeah. And we'll see. I mean, we'll Sal see what- Bando. Yeah, Sal. Yeah, Captain Sal playing at Arizona, Arizona State back in the 60s. How was about a- that?
0: They think the best draft the A's have ever had was the very first draft. That was a good draft. Wasn't Joe Rudy in that draft as well? Uh, I think it was Bando and Gene Tennis.
2: It's crazy if you go back and look. The A's, uh, I think it was MLB.com, did it, did it. And they were like, if you go back and look at 1965, who went number one? Rick Monday. Who should have went number one? Johnny Bench. Can you imagine Johnny Bench as an Oakland A? There's no Big Red Machine. <laughs> There, uh, there could be no Ray Fossey with the Oakland A's. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: what about an alternate universe that would be? What if Johnny uh, Bench I, is, is the face of the is the face of the franchise?
0: Yeah, can you imagine that? You'd be like, hey, who who's your best player all the time? Is it Ricky or is it Johnny Bench?
2: Yeah, yeah see, everyone's arguing about, about that. that. That's crazy to think that Johnny Bench, Tom Seaver, and Nolan Ryan all went later in the draft after Rick Monday went first overall. And Monday had a nice career too. They, when, when
0: did Rudy get drafted? They don't. They don't have. They don't have it on his Wikipedia page. Uh, Joe Rudy
2: was. It doesn't even say. For it doesn't even have it on his uh on his baseball reference page. Uh, but his first year in the majors was 1967. So
0: he had to get could drafted. Have been, could have been. They don't have it. We 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 will investigate it. Because if you throw in Reggie Bando, Gene Tennis, and Joe Rudy all in the same draft, wow.
2: Yeah. So last one quickly. Our friend Will Leach wrote an article on uh, MLB.com about one absurd hot tree for each team. Now the A's one goes all the way back to 2000. Enter AL MVP that year, Jason Giambi. Giambi hit 333 that season with 47 home runs, but his September, he hit 396 with 13 homers. In 2001, Eric Chavez hit 379 with 10 homers and 31 RBIs. And last year, Marcus Simeon hit 347 with eight homers and 19 RBIs. Buying or selling, no one will ever break Jason Giambi's September
4: hot streak.
0: What What, what did he hit? Uh,
2: in, in September of 2000, he only hit a cool uh, 396 with 13 home runs. Wow. <laughs>
0: The best. I, remember, next- I, I was. I, I remember being at the game. It was the day game against the Yankees. Who was the left-hander? He hit the bomb off the walk-off. God. Ugh. but it was it was electric. The crowd went nuts. It was it was unbelievable. All righty, we will be back Wednesday at six thirty. That's during the draft. That's when the age should be picking. Right about that time. So we'll come on at 6.30 and analyze the draft. Thursday, normally a day off will not be a day off. We'll be on from 2 to 5, breaking down the draft, because that's when they're going to be doing rounds 2 through 5. And then back to our normal time on Friday from 1 to 4. We will have the draft covered like a Snuggie. I can't wait. I can't wait to get into
2: the draft and see what's – like I said, can't wait to see what Hall of Famer the A's select next on
0: Wednesday. The future – is Wednesday. Great job today. Uh, Guest list, second to none. We had Paul Himbikides from ESPN, Eric Loggenhagen from Fangraphs, J.J. Cooper from Baseball America, former A's right-hander Mike Norris, and the legend, the Hall of Famer, Rod Carew. Awesome stuff. Great job, Cody. We'll see you on Wednesday night. Now back to, oh, we got a baseball game to play. Hey, the A's are going to win next, right here on A's Cast.
12: COVID-19 is more than a health crisis. It's a financial crisis for many California families. In this moment, you shouldn't have to worry about keeping the lights on. That's why at PG&E, we want you to know about our programs to reduce bills for customers facing economic hardship, that we've suspended all disconnections because of non-payment, and we can help you save money by using less energy. To learn more, visit safetyactioncenter.pge.com.
7: Chevron and its brands are committed to reliably providing fuel to customers, even during an emergency. The safety and health of workers, customers, and the communities where Chevron operates are primary concerns. In Northern California, Chevron and Texaco stations are open for business, supplying quality fuels in a safe manner.
1: This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.
17: Okay.